This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. There is a war being waged in and for every man's soul. This has gone on and been waged since the dawn and fall of mankind. Every war waged since this dawn with sword and shield was merely an outward enraged subconscious manifestation of this very war. Men believed they were battling in the name of gain, dominion, feud, birthright, and supremacy through the rousing battle cries of kings, generals, warlords, and clergy. And even these same heralds of charisma believe their words to be so. These are the skirmishes of the gray and the barren. These are the squabbles over land and riches for land and riches' sake. These are the scrapes and sketches for the shifting of lines on maps. A rarity in the stream of time would float along every once in a great while, however. A conflict of light and dark. We were surrounded with a sorry surrender to boredom. Somewhere along the line, we sold ourselves the lie that this is the holy conflict that was so boring and bound by a singular piece of time and space. We grew drunk on our labored fascination with multi-origin clashes of given circumstances, resulting in a half-measure resolve of no right and no wrong, and fragments born in each party. This is mere daily life indeed. Misunderstanding, miscommunication, troublesome timing, ignorance of the essences and minds and souls of all opposing parties. To call this the only form of conflict now, to call this the reflection of ultimate existence and the war of highest consciousness. While born in boredom as this norm-bathing confusion is, its truth radiates cowardice in its daily practice. The conflict since the soon after the beginning, the conflict since the dawn of the gray lies, the conflict emerging more present and conscious now, the conflict to end time, is the conflict between dark and light. The wars that embodied this were few and far between. And now, the one war remains. The war in and for every man's soul. This is the war that can no longer be ignored. The slumber of mankind spanning many centuries has come to an abrupt end. The gateway has been opened. The ascension set in motion. Those clinging to the norms of the slumber will only plunge themselves in harsh realms of torture. And yet, there are those beings of abundant power and a nature of spite gone down a dark path of soul slavery to a point of no return, who are throwing every ounce of will and every fragment of their being towards the act of the cage, the act of poisoning, the act of prevention. They are seeking to throw mankind 
back into dark and cold slumbers of addiction, malicious intent, and self-hatred. This is a war waged in the realm of consciousness. This is a war waged a stone's throw away from divinity's doorstep. Culture will fluctuate. Culture will erratically change day after day, marching the tide of the war upstream in the realm of consciousness. Politics further down the stream will spend a day in hope that truly knows no bounds and will spend another spitting out the erratic vocal venom of true downfall. Blades will clash, fists will bludgeon, and gunshots will wound. War will be present in this three-dimensional world you walk upon, but will be a manifestation of the war in and for every man's soul once more. Our true war is in the highest realms our mortal selves can possibly dwell in. Every man must fight in it. Every man must rise or fall. Every man must find his path to ascension. Hello. My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. If you've listened to my podcast or if you follow me on Instagram, you've heard that one thing I know in my bones is that the Renaissance of Men is a multi-generational affair. In the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and now the 20s, there have been successive waves of men rediscovering, reclaiming, and renewing masculinity for a fallen age. In some ways, each of these generations have influenced the others. It's not hard to trace, for example, the influence of the pickup community in the 90s and 2000s to the red pill community, the manosphere, and now the growth of good fathers and patriarchs. But it's been an open question for me about where things will go next. And as it turns out, the answer is far more exciting than I could have imagined. On Instagram right now, there's an organic movement happening of young men who seem to be spontaneously waking themselves up to masculinity. They're not being handed books or watching viral videos. They're just thinking deeply and realizing something's wrong and wanting to set it right. Unlike much of social media elsewhere, these men aren't interested in promoting egos, but exploring aesthetics, not in showing their faces, but sharing their words, and not in making income, but propagating ideas. It's incredibly exciting for me to see this, because as you probably know, I've made the Renaissance my life's work. If the Renaissance is like a night sky full of stars, I had a good sense of the brightest celestial bodies and most important formations. But now, as in just the past few months, a new constellation is coming together all on its own. It's quite a sight to see. And one of the brightest stars in that constellation goes by the name Arthur Dane, but he's better known as the voice and warrior spirit named Blood and Rain. He's a Muay Thai kickboxer, high-octane bartender, actor, writer, poet, Orthodox Christian, and the host of a growing podcast and Instagram account of the same name. His work is grounded and real, and you get the sense that behind his thematic weekly writings and episodes, he truly lives the principles he talks about. You can just feel it, and I think you will. In our two-hour conversation, we discussed the origins of the name Blood and Rain in a poem that he wrote that took shape in his subconscious over a long period of time, emerged suddenly, and went on to change his life. The stifling culture of the Bay Area, where he lives, and how it produces empty suits and hollow men. Power versus force, or influence versus manipulation, and how they can be used to bring new men into the Renaissance using the warm glow of honor and virtue. 
we had a brilliant discussion of how politics is downstream from culture, but culture is downstream from consciousness, and how that plays into the Renaissance and its propagating effects. And finally, Arthur shared an amazing story about how a fixed refrigerator in Cuba contributed to his very existence. People fascinate me. I love exploring the various streams that flow together to create the personalities that make up this sphere. Each of us has a unique story of how we became the men we are and who we're working to be. So you can imagine I was very excited to talk to Arthur and discover a bit about the man behind the warrior and his road as we all arrive to the start of the best party ever right on time. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, Lord Arthur Dane of Blood and Rain. Arthur, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to talking to you because there's this phrase that goes around in this world of male personal development that's been part of the lexicon since the movie Braveheart. And that phrase is warrior poets. And in that movie, they were warriors, but I didn't really see a lot of poetry. But you, on the other hand, you have your, your poetry, which is where your name Blood and Rain comes from, which we'll get to that. And you're also very much a warrior, but there's all these other sides to you, uh, including travel, including acting. And you seem like this really rich and diverse character, to use perhaps an acting phrase. And so there's a lot there. And so I feel like we have a ton to talk about. So I've been looking forward to, to digging in and finding out more about you. I greatly appreciate the uh, the kind words, and I've been very much looking forward to this uh, since you asked me to come on the show, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here and dive straight in. Excellent. Excellent. Well, for the listeners who aren't familiar with you and a bit of your background and where the name Blood and Rain comes from and, uh, and what you're doing, let's just start there, and then we'll just, we'll just roll, on, roll on through. Absolutely. Um, so the name Blood and Rain uh, wasn't really a name that I sort of you know, put up on a whiteboard and sort of brainstorming. Um, I didn't really have this sort of ambition to have like this content creation Instagram page. Um, and this is actually the second iteration of Blood and Rain that started um, really December of last year. Um, the first iteration of Blood and Rain begins to sort of emerge in the fall of 2017. And I was coming out of Muay Thai practice and across the street from my gym was a coffee shop. And I would typically walk to the coffee shop and get settled. And I would take notes on training. And then I'd also take notes on my sort of where my being was at, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and whatnot. Um, and I would have quite a few enriching conversations with very, you know, very wise uh, and enlightened people that I would encounter at this coffee shop. And I sort of, over time, noticed sort of, I, I noticed a poem in my head sort of start to emerge. And I didn't know it was a poem at first. Um, but I started hearing some of the phrases. I started hearing some of the words. Um, I sort of heard the essence of it before all the words necessarily materialized. So I would, I would hear it and I would sort of feel it. And in some cases, I'd be able to see it, um, almost see, hear, feel the essence and energy of it. Um, and I didn't know it was a poem until I had a discussion for about two hours with um, a gentleman who had done quite a bit of school and was an investment banker and actually just left his life as an investment banker. And 
um, had been spending about a year reading and practicing yoga and really hitting the gym super hard and trying to find himself and figure out who he was truly without this set of goals that he had set by his family growing up for the longest time. And in speaking with him, I'm not, I can't entirely remember what the exact thing that he asked me. I think he asked me sort of my philosophy as a martial artist or my philosophy as a man. Um, and I was about 20, I was about 23 at the time. And he was, I think he had maybe 20 years on me. Um, but he's asking, you know, he's asking me at a younger age and it sort of took me aback. and I didn't really have a straight answer at the time, but it sort of came to me right then and there. It actualized that I'm writing this poem and I'm not entirely sure what the name is yet. I know some of the lines, I can feel the rhythm of it. Um, but as soon as I finish it, I'll let you know. And I didn't see him for a while and then months passed and I was able to, at this point in time, I was beginning to attend an Orthodox Christian church and my spiritual life and my life of faith were beginning to significantly deepen. And I got the, I had the privilege of getting work off. I was bartending, uh, at the time in San Francisco and I had the privilege of getting work off for a Saturday night for my first Orthodox Easter, which is called Pascha. Wow. And the Orthodox Easter service is a, uh, it's like a midnight mass service for all the Catholics out there, you know, on Christmas. You get there, I just finished watching uh, Habib Nurmagomedov win his belt uh, for the first time. And I've been a huge Khabib fan. He's, a, he's one of my idols as a martial artist. And friends of mine said, you want us to drive you to your church thing? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And I get there and they give you a candle um, because the lights are off. And you have a service from 11 to midnight. That's the first portion of the service. But 11 to 11.45 is inside. And then they have you take your candle and walk around the church uh, and wait outside uh, from 11.55 to midnight. And I wasn't really expecting to have any sort of spiritual experience. I think whenever you try to force a spiritual experience, you lead yourself down a path of incredible self-deception. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had learned that the hard way in my life a couple of times leading up to this point. So that sort of notion wasn't even in my head at this point. It had been deleted you know, the hard way. And <clears throat> I was, I had the candle in my hand. I was just very happy to have work off because a running joke was if, you know, if Arthur isn't at home, the gym or at work, he's dead. Like he's not, he's a, he's not, he's not parting with someone. He's not with some girl. He's, he's in one of those three places or he's dead. Um, and so it was, it was, I was very happy to have work off and I was very happy to be at church and I was very happy to be able to attend Pascha this time because I wanted to the year previous, but I had gotten in the Orthodox church too close to the time in order to get work off. And I'm very content. I have a big smile on my face. And then I look up at the cross on top of the church and I see my entire life flash before my eyes. Wow. And up until some, some pretty key frames and some key information that was received at the very end that was, I don't want to say new, I think it was just dormant, to be honest, since I sort of had an idea since the fall of 2017. 
And right when that flash finished, it was midnight and they yelled, Christ is risen. And then they yelled, Christ is risen in Russian. I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, and then the, the service carries on into three in the morning. And then there's a, like, there's a, a full divine liturgy as it's called. Um, and then there's, there's a, there's a reading and then there's a feast. And, um, I got a ride home, uh, with one of the more quirky older Russian men. And, uh, we had this pretty deep conversation about reincarnation being deleted from the history of the church. And I was like, I don't really know what to do with this information. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was citing some of his sources and he was said it's an ongoing process of reading and learning. And this took me aback because the Orthodox Church had become a pretty big pillar of stability in my life. And it was a place of growth. Um, and it was, it was beneficial in every single way. And I looked at him and I said, then why do you attend an Orthodox Church? And he looked at me, he almost stopped the car. And he said, because it's the only thing that we, it's the closest thing that we have. I was like, okay, well, well, yeah, <laughs> I was like, that's, that's quite a statement. I came to this church after much, much research, realizing that the Orthodox church is the, what I at least perceive to be. And for the most part, this is true to be seen as the unaltered church. You know, there's never been a single Pope figure. There's never been a reformation. There's never been an, a mass inquisition in the name of the church. Um, and that's why I was drawn to it mm-hmm. among other things. Um, and I had my bar shift the next, the, the next day on the Sunday and the sort of poem started to emerge and I was able to scribble all of it down. And I, I sort of knew that it wasn't going to be, be me writing one line one day and writing a couple lines here. I knew that it was going to be a process where I was just going to know that I had it and I was going to just zip through it. And that's what happened. And I went through and I sort of looked at the words on the paper and I figured out looking at it, I said, I think this is probably like the essence of myself that I just put on paper, Mm. the essence of what I believe, the essence of my truest, highest, strongest self and a self that. I think I've felt myself betray either knowingly or unknowingly throughout my years growing up and throughout all the time leading up to this point. And one of my regulars at the bar, uh, a group of them, they're, uh, they're more, you know, English savvy. You know, they're people who I, I knew for a fact read quite a bit of books after many of our conversations. And normally I wouldn't, you know, normally I, I, I keep a lot of things close to the best. Um, Norm, you know, normally I like to keep things to myself for as long as possible until I find there's a genuine window to share things. That's typically how I operate in real life, at least for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I shared the poem and one of them, I didn't even know was a poetry professor. And he oh, says, wow. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. Well, he's going to thrash this to shreds. And they were all really, you know, they all loved the poem. And the professor said, do you realize that you wrote this on iambic pentameter? And I said, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, he's like, yeah, this is like with, a, with the exception of the last line, which is a couplet. The, the rest of the last line is, so keep your leisure and sunshine or, and knowing this from dusk till dawn, I'll endure the pain 
So keep your leisure in sunshine and I'll take blood and rain. And he's like, with the exception of that last couplet, the rest of it is iambic pentameter. And that's probably your drama training from England leaking in. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's without a single shadow of a doubt. And that was sort of the rhythm that I had felt. So it wasn't this, that part wasn't necessarily something that sort of emerged, but that was something that was programmed through years of Shakespeare training. And when I wrote this poem, I, I sort of knew that my, I, I, I couldn't really present this sort of true self because it's very intense and it's something that I felt especially you know in the Bay Area that's very like I work in tech and I work in real estate and oh what do you do and mm-hmm. it's very just very much based on the literal and very much based on the bottom line and very much based on tangible innovation um that it's like this, this self, maybe outside of maybe in some circles of writers, like maybe if I, you know, was brave enough to walk into City Lights bookshop and sort of started to ask about circles of writers and then to edit my writing um, and maybe some MMA gyms, you know, that this could be understood. But for the most part, I don't think I can consistently present myself like this wholeheartedly. I, I do still live in efforts of a ghost. I have multiple layers of almost autopilots and dealing with customers and dealing with people who aren't like-minded, but in hopes of still being kind to people who I'm not like-minded with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found, I, I started an Instagram, the original Instagram called blood and rain in 2018. And, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what you see now, right now there's, it's, it's, it is very aesthetic conscious because coming into contact with other content creators, they, they sort of, Share to me the wisdom of cultivating um, specific aesthetics. The original Instagram was just me sort of documenting without anyone knowing that it was me because it was, there was no name attached to it. Mm-hmm. This sort of emerging to be this self that I wrote down on paper after this Easter service, after this, it was sort of granted to me to write. And it, the, the Instagram was really just me documenting day in and day out my physical training, all the developments I'd have in church, all the developments I'd have with writing, um, this sort of emerging of this essence in its truest form in real life. So to the point where I can't, it's, it's unshakable and people are just going to have to say, though, that's who that person is wholeheartedly now. There's no defenses. There's no lines of greetings or autopilots and whatnot. Um, so that was, that was the original, that was the original blood and rain, uh, until through other events I've mentioned on my podcast that I betrayed my own path without realizing it. Mm -hmm. It sort of knocked me into a series of events that were very, I don't want to say catastrophic because it's a bit overdramatic, but I mean, catastrophic to my life at least and very difficult times. And then in, in a lot of time, there was a physical injury involved. There was, there was a lower back injury that was long-term involved. There was somewhat of a spiritual injury involved. There was the, the death of a mentor that um, I held very dear all at once. Mm-hmm. And I sort of betrayed this path uh, for much of the time. You know, Blood and Rain became this personal account of, you know, me sharing pictures of my loved ones and I and, you know, Occasional memes and, you know, the occasional ill-advised sports ball posts talking about how <laughs> Joe Montana is still the greatest quarterback of all time. Agreed. Uh, that, see, 
four and zero in the Super Bowl. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but no interceptions. But yeah, we're like, yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> classic <laughs> classic sports is very different from contemporary sports. So it doesn't delay that out. Like talking about someone like Joe Montana is a very different thing from talking about like you know as much as I like him, Tom Brady or something like that. There's something there's artistry in sport of the years prior that I don't know that exists today. But please continue. I, I completely agree. I, that's that's been sort of the disconnect. Like I'll talk about Bill Walsh and Vince Lombardi, and uh, you know the the seventy two Dolphins. Like there is a lot more artistry and toughness involved and authenticity, and um, there was less in life outside of sports at the time. So, mm-hmm. but I, I I really don't talk about sports ball today at all. Right. But um, but um, and it got to a point through a, a, a series of unfortunate events. Um, that I reached a sort of breaking point around September of last year. And maybe we can, we can go through that. I don't, I don't want to sort of run through the, the, the documentation in order of all the events of my life since then, since I betrayed that path. So sorry, um, just real quick. When you say September of last year, do you mean September 2020 or September 2019? Uh, 2020. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So recently. Very recently. Yeah. So I reached a breaking point and to the point where it's like, I am so far from myself that like to go any further would just be to circle back to myself. Mm. Honestly. Mm. Um, that's a, uh, I could spend hours on that phrase alone. That was amazing. Continue though. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, that, that things, there are many things in life that are cyclical in nature. And this is certainly one of them. It's like, no matter, no matter where I went, I did come back to that authentic. I don't want to say authentic self because that's being, sort of a new age thing that's being thrown around in the name of being immoral. Um, yeah. Yeah. But oh, God, we can get into that. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, many topics. Oh my gosh. You're just blown. My mind is, mind is still blown with this. Can't get further away from myself without starting to come back. That's just like, uh, but continue. Sorry. <laughs> so much, so much but, of what you're saying is like, where do I, where, yes, I want to dive into all of this, but this is, please keep going. Sorry. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. Oh no, no, it's, it's, it's quite all right. It's quite all right. Um, and, um, I, uh, so my, my personal Instagram was, was blood and rain and I changed it to something that I'm not going to disclose, obviously. Um, and I had to wait <laughs> and there's that period on Instagram where you have those 14 day grace periods. Like, are you sure you want to change your name and you can change it back for the next 14 days, but then the name blood and rain's gone forever. I'm like, well, no, it's not. Cause I'm just going to snag it. Cause no one else is going to take the name blood and rain. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I did. Um, but it wasn't really fully fledged in September. Like it was still sort of floating. And then it'd be like, really like December, December was like, Hey, like, Hey, start, just, just start that, 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 that was all just start. Mm-hmm. And I started posting and I started posting, um, less long form content. Um, I actually, the original post was, was the same as the original blood and rain. The original post, if you go all the way back, it's a, it's a duel between from one of the greatest pieces of art ever. Uh, anime is being ripped on because people, a lot of people don't know what good anime is. Um, mm. But the final duel between Spike Spiegel and Vicious from Cowboy Bebop and under it in the text is the, the whole poem, Blood and Rain. So that was the first post. And then after that, I shared much cryptic, very esoteric art. And then I sort of started just writing long form content. And that's when things sort of started to really pick up. I, I, to my surprise, things have shifted probably due to quarantine to be abundantly honest. 
mm-hmm. where people needed to slow it down and people needed to take a hard look at themselves and realize like I've been chasing 180 characters. I've been chasing texts and tweets and, and alcohol binges and all these fast things that, you know, just haze one away from themselves. People were actually looking for a long form, not just, you know, long form Joe podcasts, you know, Joe Rogan really started the whole four hour podcast thing or people were receiving that well, but long form written content, to my surprise. And I just sort of kept posting and I sort of took a step back and I said, this, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really fully understood why, understand why I started it in the very beginning, but it came to a point of realization, like right around the time of the great conjunction, uh, the winter solstice in December is like this iteration of blood and rain is a return to the path. Mm-hmm. Like this, this, this page is an expression of your return to the path towards fostering your highest, greatest self, not only for yourself, but for those around you and anyone who you have the privilege of helping and assisting to be the greatest, highest version of themselves. Like that's sort of ultimately the mission statement of it. Um, and that's, that's where blood and rain is now. Um, I throw a number of, I mean, my two biggest loves in life in terms of self, like uh, selfish practices, like not like things I enjoy doing the most. Like if you say I, you could get paid, you know, seven figure salary to do two things, be like be writing and fighting, <laughs> plain and simple. Um, if you had to give me a third, it probably would go back to acting, but I don't think the time to return to acting has yet approached if, if there ever is a time. But, um, so I, I began posting quite a bit of martial arts content and breakdowns, which was well received for the most part. And then long form content. And then I started using all the experiences that I had and all the various out of left field and unorthodox areas of expertise that I've had both the privilege and, you know, just the spontaneous interest of diving into that I've started sharing on blood and rain that have been well received for the most for so far. And, um, that's where the page is now. Honestly. What I think is so interesting about the story is that, so you have this poem and I know, I, I, I don't know exactly what liquid this is that I'm about to describe, but I think it might be water. There's a state that you can get water into where it's hyper cooled normally to the degree that it would be frozen. Um, but it's still in its liquid state. I don't know quite how to get it there. I, I think I've heard it referred to as super saturated water. Uh, but, uh, and it may not be water I'm talking about at all, but for the purposes of this, of this little metaphor, we'll just say that it's water. It may be something else. And I'll look it up afterwards and see if I can put it in the show notes, but it's, it's this super saturated water that's still in a liquid state. But if you take a single crystal of ice and you drop it into the super saturated water, the whole thing crystallizes instantly. It just mm. needs that little piece of something that's properly structured and organized to organize the whole around it. So as you're talking about this, this poem that, uh, that you said that you were gifted to write, I mean, I think it was, I think maybe as much as you were gifted to write it, it was something that was birthed from within you, some pure image of yourself that once it was conjured, once it was created and, and brought forth into actual manifestation from, from the void of just a, a nebulous idea into some actual tangible form, it sounds like your whole life and your whole person and your whole being sort of began to kind of crystallize around this singular poem, this singular image, but I think is beautiful. And that's, that seems to be what you're describing and what an incredible experience because there's a lot, 
and what you're saying to organize around that. So I didn't even mention like your, your bartending, uh, you know, aspect of, of what you do in your, and there's the writing and then there's the acting and then there's the martial arts and your, your incredible discipline. And then there's also the, the, uh, Greek Orthodox, the Orthodox church and all these different aspects of yourself can be very difficult for someone to balance, except for you found this little crystal within yourself that you then dropped in. And it feels like everything's organizing around that now to the point where now you have a podcast and an Instagram page. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've honestly never really thought of it in that way, to be honest. I think that's, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head of what that poem was in relation to everything else. Because, you know, I think you're, you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head where I went through my life where I, you know, I had a similar moment that maybe foreshadowed this actually, you know, pretty much five years apart. Uh, when I was auditioning for drama schools, there's one drama school I went to that had multiple rounds of auditions. Actually, all the good ones have multiple rounds of auditions. <laughs> right. Um, because you're trying to weed, there's thousands of applicants, and then drama schools take typically um, as low as 16 people, and then I believe as high as 32 people. Um, and I was in my final round, and you know, the final round is a workshop throughout the day. It's like a life at blank drama school, a day in the life at blank drama, drama school. So you do movement, and you do scene study and you do improvisation, you do sight reading. Um, and then the final bit is you get with the coach and you coach the monologue that you're going to present for this final stage. It's a separate monologue from the three monologues you present in your preliminary auditions. Um, and then you present it in front of your fellow audition, the other people auditioning and uh, the panel from the drama school. And mine was a seed in monologue and it was from it was from a play based on journals of a man named Christopher Isherwood, and the play was called I Am a Camera, and that was actually I Am a Camera is the inspiration for the musical Cabaret, mm -hmm. um, and it's the opening scene. It's very, you know, I was in between this and a, and a Shakespeare speech. I was in between this and uh, Edmund from King Lear, um, which is always a pretty safe bet in the world of acting, mm -hmm. uh, especially you know for a twenty something dark featured you know person <laughs> and uh dark featured to, man trying not to typecast yourself too much yeah you know that when i got to drama school it just became inevitable they're like arthur you're a <laughs> you're dark you're intense you know you have dark features you know you're gonna be playing the villain or the anti-hero or you know drug addict he's a bit strung out i'm like thanks thank you like so you're telling me i'm never gonna be a hero thanks thank you <laughs> Um, <laughs> can I can I make a request real quick? Yeah. Can you please do the rest of the interview in that voice? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could at least do it. Like, there's when you get to England, it's such a small. The UK is such a small island. You don't realize that there's like 34 accents there. I'm like, you you grew up 10 miles from this place, and you sound completely different from 10 miles from there. This is mm -hmm. this is insane. We don't even have that in the United States, which is we're just completely dwarf the size of the UK. It's fascinating. Yeah. Not that regionalized uh, for sure. Maybe once upon a time before, um, you know, before the thirties, you had, you had two similar things in the UK. When you hear the sort of really posh accent, like, Oh no, I'm terribly upset. And <laughs> um, you know, um, what's his face? Um, Michael Fassbender in *Inglorious Bastards when he gets figured out by the Germans, when he did, when he shows the English three with his hands, yeah. starting from the index finger as opposed to starting from the thumb. Yeah. Um, 
And he, he knows he's been had. And he says, well, gentlemen, I suppose it'd be best if I get speaking to kings. Um, you know, that very lazy, mm-hmm. very like, oh, I can't possibly be bothered to take out the Land Rover. I was supposed to take out the Jag. It's a very lazy <laughs> accent, very regal accent. I love it. Um, and I, I'm butchering her. I, I can hear my coaches like pick apart the the, the details of my, that accent right now. because It's been some time. Sure. But um, they, they, they standardized the the accent in the UK for the BBC radio based on the accent of it's it's a much more softened version of the accent of the royal family at the time. Um, so that way, people from Yorkshire and people from Cornwall could both understand. So if you had people from that Nath, you know, talking like that, you know, a lot of people in the South weren't going to understand. And the same similar thing happened with the rise of film um, in the United States. You had people talking like, um, you know, a great exaggeration of it would be Jimmy Stewart. Like, oh, Harvey and I like to sit in the bars and have a drink or two the jukebox you know that very like well he owns a bakery and it's not just bread it's an entire variety of baked goods and oh whatever it is it sounds awful and it's like everyone had that standardized accent and i think that sort of ended quite a bit of regional accents that we never really got to hear in this generation in this country whereas for whatever reason in the uk they really stuck right you know you know i would Um, say of all the directions i expected this interview to go in like impressions and accents was probably (laughs) very very low at the bottom of the list (laughs) <laughs> well i hope it's uh i hope it's been a pleasant surprise oh i'll, I'll have uh, more i'll have more requests later like if it, you ever want to slip into any accent at any point during this conversation just go for it i love it i could i could certainly make this interesting i could speak on some very tense difficult you know dark topic and just slip into you know jamaican accent or something that'd be hilarious is that was that actually uh, part of your training though like you actually you actually have have mastered a number of different accents I mean, so I always had an, uh, an ear for accents, and I think I actually got that from my father, who grew up in New York City. So he grew up with, you know, obviously an, an abundantly diverse um, group of people. Right. But he always did impressions on the television, and I, I heard some of them, and I was like, you know what, Pops, that's, that ain't bad. You know? And um, I think I inherited that from him, so I always had an ear for accents, like my mm-hmm. little talent show. Oddly enough, my Aussie accent sucks now, probably because I spent so much time in the UK. Mm. Um, when I was seven years old, my talent show thing was doing an impression of Steve Irwin. Um, <laughs> it just got like just got a b- bunch of laughs. So I always had an ear for accents. In fact, when I was when I was on my way to, and again, you know, there's going to be native speakers like, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong. Yeah, sure, yeah, you sound terrible. Uh, enough. To an American, you sound, <laughs> you sound amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, so the, the most part, it'll hit. But I was on a layover in Chicago on my way to London for the same audition I was speaking about, which would be a great way to bring it back there. Yeah, exactly. But, I, I didn't lose track of the thread. Yeah, we're keeping keeping tabs on a bunch of things. We're, going uh, off, we're just going off-roading. We're, we'll get back onto the main highway. Absolutely. And side quests are there for a reason. Um, <laughs> Pick up your accent side quest. Exactly. The side quests don't always have to be fetch. You know, that's, that's, that's true. That, that's a stereotype. There's always the, um, we're getting the XP on the conversation. It'd be fine. We're going to level up so much during the course of this entire podcast. I'm excited. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Skyrim, the conversation. Oh, God. If only so many people, including the high bar of Chattistan, would love for life to be Skyrim. That's right. We're going to get um, to dragon shouts by the end. I, I can't wait. Let's get there faster. <laughs> <laughs> hey, patience. You gotta, <laughs> we're still building the skill tree. Oh, absolutely. I used to be an adventurer like you until I took an accent <laughs> conversation. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Okay. 
Ah, uh, cheers to you, sir. Likewise, brother. Likewise. Um, and um, yeah, I was I was on my way to this layover in Chicago, and I hear these um, I hear UK speakers, um, and you know it's typically like southern, like Buckinghamshire, that type of accent, mm. and I'm really bored, <laughs> and I'm on my way, obviously, to a callback. And I say, I just whip up um, a very stereotypical German accent, like, oh, excuse me, um, I, 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 I'm so sorry, I, I couldn't tell if, um, if you're English or Australian, like certain inflections sounded very Australian, but uh, are you an Englishman? It's like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm from England. It's like, oh, it's just, you know, certain inflections sounded very sharp, um, as opposed to typically soft uh, English accent. And he's like, oh, where are you from? Like, oh, I'm from Dortmund. And he's like, oh, right, are you a Borussia Dortmund fan? And I was like, oh, yes, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, at the time, they're going to be playing the Champions League final against Bayern München. He's like, how do you think they're going to do in the Champions League final against Bayern Munich? And I said, you know, normally I'd say that's a lightning offense of Marco Voice and um, Robert Lewandowski. It'd be too much for the, the München defense. So they do have that chip on the shoulder from last year and losing in the home stadium against Chelsea. Um, so... I do think that chip on the shoulder be enough to beat the uh, and shut down the um, the lightning offense from Dortmund. And he's like, "Oh right, right." And I eventually said, "And I'm actually from the Bay Area." He's like, "What?" So um, and he's so like, I, "I don't know if it's your accent that convinced me, or you know, your knowledge of German football." And I was like, "Oh, probably both. Hopefully." Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I told him I was on my way to a callback, and he's like, "Oh, so you're just practicing?" I said, "Absolutely. I'm." I'm I've been here for four hours. This is ridiculous. I'll make it to London already. I heard it's going to be sunny in London, which is just going to be amazing. Um, because that never happens. But at this sunny, um, you know, during this sunny callback, I, when it was my turn to do the monologue, I was right in the middle of the group. And this, this monologue, as I mentioned before, it was a sort it's this it's a player based on these journals from Christopher Isherwood that went on to be mm-hmm. made into a musical into cabaret. And it's the very first page in the play and he's talking to himself and he's sitting at a desk and he's trying to actually figure him, figure himself out. And he start he starts, gets a little weird. He starts talking to himself. He's like, what would Alfred Tennyson do? Alfred Tennyson used to repeat his name, Alfred Tennyson, Alfred Tennyson, Alfred Tennyson, Christopher Isherwood, Christopher Isherwood. I like the sound of my name. You know, that's, that's, it's in the monologue. He's, he's having this little dialogue in himself, but he eventually pauses. And the last line of the monologue really hit me and it's the name of the play. He has this pause himself, basically trying to figure out something authentic for himself. And he eventually comes out with, I'm a camera with the shutter open, quite passive. Mm. Soon all of this will have to be developed, printed, and fixed. Mm. And he points to himself as he says this. So I, I pull up, a, you know, it's my, my go for the monologue. And I pull up a chair and I have hair to my shoulders at the time. And I brush my hair back and I, I sit down. And I felt this rush to the head that said, everything you've done in your entire life has led up to this monologue. Mm. Go. And honestly, it wasn't even like I was performing it at this point. Like, mm. you know, certain, there's a saying with ski jumpers, like there's the ones that, you know, you know, you did wrong. And like, there's the ones that you did great and you know, you did great. And there's the ones where you don't even think about it. You just feel it. 
it, it was it was certainly that um and every mark was hit every point that needed a laugh received a laugh i could feel and you you have to the whole monologue has a structure in which you're trying to pull the audience in to this big pause make them anticipate and have that punch statement of i am a camera with a shutter open quite passive mm-hmm. so and all of this will have to be developed printed and fixed and i um I sort of knew that I was a lot had at that point because of that sort of head rush statement that I had received that this was less about the performance aspect of it. And this is more about like, Hey, you're, you're 18 years old. You're about, you're certainly about to move to England because you, you've gotten into more than one of these schools and you're going to be on your own in a foreign country, 5,000 miles away from where you're from. And the word that bothered me was passive I don't really, I don't, I don't think anyone who knows me personally would describe me as passive, No, but, (laughs) um, and maybe, maybe people can tell that from the text, from the podcast or whatnot, but um, it's in your whole presentation. I I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) No, it's, I mean, that's, that's really true. Like there's, there's nothing about you that, that comes off as passive. It's in your, it's in your diction. It's in your writing. It's in the content. Like it just, if there's, if there's one, if there's one quality I would not describe you of as it's passive. So that, I think that's obvious in everything that you put out because it's not part of your character. In fact, the opposite is part of your character, but please continue. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, and, but I think the, the line passed, the, the word passive in it was, I think because of the, like, the nature of my life leading up to this point where I had to endure a lot of things that I, some I, I was equipped to and some I wasn't. And being an only child, I was receiving a lot more than I was putting out. And I think there was hmm. that authentic, that authenticity fast forward five years to blood and rain that was trying to surge to get out. Mm-hmm that wasn't and that was what was being that that was the passive element i think that's why that hit like so it's like day in and day out you know no one and no one in the drama school i wound up going to would have described me as passive and likewise but that element the whole essence of blood and rain the essence of myself really was being passive because it's hiding behind this assortment of you know teenage born insecurities and you know a lot of punk rock rage growing up and you know a, a number of things that you sort of shake off with time you know from from teenage years mm-hmm. so and I, w- I wouldn't say it's just teenagers i think there's more to it than that but you know off the top of my head i would say that's that's the ultimate not ultimate but that's the most noticeable blatant transition um so it's interesting that you know I've noticed there's always, there's always these parallels, these checkpoints in life, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years, sometimes seven years apart that, as I said before, things come full circle, things are cyclical. And this was certainly one of them now that I think about it out loud, because five years from blood and rain being sort of gifted was this moment with the monologue. And I think that 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 monologue started a five year period towards figuring out blood and rain, mm-hmm. which is I'm just figuring this out now. Mm-hmm. Honestly, honestly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, go for it. I'm sort of I'm sort of taking that in as it comes, but um, yeah, thank you. I've never I've never really seen 
I've never really seen Blood and Rain being that sort of like final piece that ties all these things together because, you know, especially, and you've lived in the Bay Area, so you know that it's like, if you don't have, if if you're not like, hi, I'm this designer for Adobe, or hi, I'm an architect programmer for Google, (laughs) or hi, I'm the head realtor at this team Mm -hmm. uh, that covers the accounts in Piedmont Hills, uh, just near Oakland. Like it's, it's like, oh, you do all these things like, oh, what's the return? Like, what's the return? Like, what's the, it's like really just nerdy sort of just bizarro dynamic. It's almost like this insecurity as, as a whole that bleeds through from Silicon Valley. Um, and you know, that made me feel somewhat isolated and outcasted having like all these skills that and knowledge bases that I maybe sort of saw as useless ultimately because I wasn't really monetizing them or it wasn't applying them to my life every single day like I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's, I think maybe that's why you see such an eclectic range in Blood and Rain now. In the page that is, not the poem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you know, having lived in, having lived in the Bay area, I know that the limitations of the psychology is all about, it's all about the LinkedIn profile. You know, what skills, what abilities do you have? What accomplishments do you have? If you can't capture them on a LinkedIn profile, are they real? And that's one of the really terrible things I think about, about that particular culture and, and especially in LinkedIn. Um, and so for men and probably also women as well, but for, but for men who have a diverse range of interests who believe in things like self-cultivation, who believe in things like inner development and exploration and living life outside of the professional sphere. My experience was that it was very, it was very disheartening to have done all this work inside myself, to have done so many cool things and been through some very, very hard stuff with my family. Um, you know, to have gone through some very challenging things and to have taken some, some big risks in terms of the choices that I made. And they don't necessarily pan out in the way that I wanted, but I learned a ton. I learned a ton and it made me a better person. And I continued working through them until I had some intangible result. But then when I went to go put them on my LinkedIn profile, there's nothing to put there. There's nothing to put there at all. You know, when a, when a, when a family member, dies and you're responsible for carrying the entire load of sorting out the estate and everything under extraordinarily difficult circumstances like congratulations you did the thing it doesn't go on linkedin but that process still takes a lot of time and no one can if no one can see it tangibly represented they don't value it in the bay area which is it's really sad because that completely contradicts so many of the stated values of of personal development or of, I guess, new age spirituality, which is about personal experience, like experiencing yourself as opposed to developing, I suppose. So, and so I know exactly what you mean to have gone through these phases where you've really cultivated yourself inwardly in these very meaningful ways in terms of your perspective and your attitudes and your thoughts and, and your beliefs, bringing these these disparate halves of yourself together to create something and to try and give that to someone in the Bay Area and to have them, you know, you're handing them this, what you feel is a gem or something you've worked on, this sculpture perhaps of self that you've, that you've crafted and you hand it to someone and look at it, it's like, what is this junk? You know, and it's, and it's, it's heartbreaking almost in a way to recognize as I think you do in yourself, like, no, I, this is actually a value, but I'm just in the wrong, I'm in the wrong place to try and find people who value it like I do. 
which is the amazing thing about this renaissance, this ascension that we're living through, is so many different men that have spent so much time and energy cultivating themselves in meaningful ways now have the ability to connect with each other and they're like, we're not crazy. Like we're actually good yeah. human beings, right? And so I think you're, I think, you know, it's like the pearls before swine. I don't, I don't like dehumanizing people like that, but that's why that metaphor exists is we've spent all this time developing ourselves in these meaningful ways and you try and show it to someone who doesn't value it, who can't eat it, I guess you might say. But when you meet people who also have pearls or who have gems or whatever, it's like, oh my God, you've got some of this. I got some of this. And then, you know, magic happens that way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, how, how many times do you look back on great, you know, great achievements through collaboration, like SNL, like when it was good, right? Obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Eddie Murphy era at SNL, not yeah. um, Prehist prehistoric at this point. Exactly. You know, that's, that's the SNL my, my father, you know, saw when he first came out when he was a teenager. So, yeah. um, you know, and when you hear about, it's taken point, I'm sure this is an example most people are going to know. Look at Midnight in Paris, the film, uh, the Woody Allen film, amazing film. Is that the one with, uh, with Owen Wilson? Yeah. Like, okay. Wow. Wow. Ernest Hemingway. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, bro. It's like, you look at, so, and obviously there's part of the sphere is sort of rejecting degeneracy, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with and want to continue to help foster. Um, but, uh, one creator of the invincible way who was actually, he, his page popped up around the same time that the first iteration of blood and rain popped up. And when blood and rain popped up again, he was like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, mm -hmm. so but he posted in a story, you know, most great works in the Western world were written under the influence of scotch and cigarettes. And I was like, I don't know if I can argue against that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, Tolstoy would certainly have something to say about that. Kenzaburo Owe would have something to say about that. But again, that's airing on the Eastern world. Like Russia has one foot in the Eastern world and one foot in the Western world. And while Kenzaburo Owe was very much... Um, and just enthralled by French literature, he still grew up in a, in a forested village of Japan. So I started to like think about it. I was like, he's probably right, honestly. Steinbeck probably had his fair amount of scotch when he was mm -hmm. writing Rick the Wrath in the South Bay Area, you know. Mm -hmm. Jack London, probably. Oh, big time, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, among other things, probably. Yeah. Hemingway, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah among, yeah, among other things. Absent, yeah. you know that much. Um, Theory so, checks out. <laughs> Yeah, the theory, it really does. And I, I, I really didn't like it because I, I was like, you know, a great creation could come without under the influence of anything. You know, I don't need any outside influence. I can do this. You know, it's, <laughs> it's this chip on the shoulder of mine. But, you know, when you look at Midnight in Paris, you know, Owen Wilson, you know, obviously at midnight in Paris, he gets transported to the early 20s. This is this is the beginning of the modern world. And it's sort of like, I feel like most of the fruits of modernism happen in the very beginning. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, because what was fa what's world war one in general fascinates me more than world war two does because world, especially in the United States, world war two, we just look back and are like, yeah, that was the day we were the good guys. Yeah. And we got the job done from beginning to end, not just at the tail end. And, we beat a truly evil enemy that everyone saw as evil and we were here. Then we became the world power. It's like, okay, I get it. There's mm -hmm. it's a vic victory dance. Like I, I, I understand. Yeah. Um, but world war one is, is fascinating to me because it's, it's at the nexus of 
the world of, of, of empires and the world of, you know, royalty, you know, monarchy being the norm, feudalism being the norm. Um, a lot of old practices that we're now trying to bring back in this renaissance being the norm mm-hmm. and modern, modern warfare completely just ripping that wide open. Yeah. Um, it was the end of many empires for that reason. And it was this nexus of like both guerrilla tactics and traditional tactics that were getting so many people killed for four years on offensives on the Western front that only advanced, you know, for 30 miles max at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so with world war one, the, the, the modern, the, the cornerstone of modernist literature that I love, and this became absurdly evident, like just so blatantly evident to me in a short story by Ernest Hemingway called in another country that takes place in this military hospital in Italy because, um, Hemingway served in, in the Italian front Mm -hmm. in 1917. Um, and it just abruptly ends. Like there's this conversation that's being had and it abruptly ends just very strangely. And the cornerstone of one of the main cornerstones of modern literature is the abandonment of modern syntax. Meaning, you know, you read a book typically the count of Monte Cristo's perfect, perfect example. It's like, you have this introduction, you have this, this rise towards a climax. The climax happens. You have a denouement coming down from the climax into a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you're granted this cycle back, back to this nature of cycles. But because war was more glorified in the past because the stakes were a bit lower. You know, war was this honorable thing. Like, oh, there was a war every five minutes in Europe. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, the Spanish are fighting the French. Oh, now the Austrians are fighting the, the, the Prussians. Now the, the Swedes are fighting the English. Like, it wasn't that big a deal. It was this honorable thing. Like, oh, I'm going I'm I'm to go to war and there's going to be honor in it. I'm going to be dressed in a beautiful battle uniform. And I'm going to, you know, some may die, but I'm going to get my glory that comes from it. Whereas modern warfare mm-hmm. that started in World War I with the trench warfare, a guy stands up at the trench and gets killed. Mm-hmm. Or there's mustard gas and there's airplanes and there's beginning of tanks. So it's like this, oh, hang on, you might not get, you might not even get to the climax. Mm-hmm. There's an abrupt ending. So this splitting wide open of all of these traditional structures of storytelling because they saw it firsthand in a global, the first, well, not this really the second global conflict, but that's getting in the splitting hairs in the world of history. Mm. Um, but Wait, then what, you was, see, what was the first one? Sorry. Uh, it was the hundred years war. Okay. Um, it, was, it, it happened in various parts of the world more over obviously a much longer period of time than four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I could just hear like hundreds of people listening to the podcast being like, well, what was the first one? And so I had that. <laughs> I'm just forcing everyone like, oh, go, go check it out. You can leave some bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, then it left these writers like Fitzgerald, like Gertrude Stein, like Ernest Hemingway, just chewing on this, like, well, what does that mean for storytelling? Mm-hmm. And they all came off of that. And they all congregated in Paris, which is the most beautiful city in the world. It's a great, it's a great place to do it. Yeah. Um, and they got together and they started putting out the works that really we revere m- most, and at least in the United States today. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is separate or independent of the fact that they did congregate and they did share ideas and they mm-hmm. did grow with these new ideas that if you would have told someone this idea, if you would have told someone the idea for Gatsby or the sun also rises or the old man in the sea, obviously that came later, that came mm-hmm. in the fifties, but 
if you would have told anyone these ideas to someone in 1917, they would have thought it was stupid. Like, well, where's, where's the climax? Where's the denouement and whatnot? Um, but it took them getting together saying, you know what? Like you said, we're not crazy. This mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that brought out, that brought out modern literature. There's so many periods of time that just usher in decades and decades of new norms and new ideas or return to ideas that never should have been abandoned in the first place that start with congregation of, of men, a congregation of people, not, not just men, but obviously with the Renaissance of men, we're speaking more so about men because mm-hmm. I think really right now we're the group that needs to shape up and we're the group that needs to get together and help strengthen each other. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think with what you're saying about everything, not being able to be on a LinkedIn page, I thought, Jesus, man, mm-hmm. like it's, like you said, like I went through this hardship, like, oh, what's, what's your sales figure on your hardship? What, what's, what's your marketing content? What, where are your marketing materials for the suicide of one of your closest friends? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, why, why don't we circle back in like two weeks? Um, I'll shoot you an email and uh, we'll reach out. You know, it's California English for it's never going to happen. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> Brutal. And yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. And it's done with a, the hollowest smile you've ever seen in your life since maybe seeing a Tom Cruise interview. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And on the flip side of things, go have a conversation with one of these people who have this dense LinkedIn deliverable resume. Go have a conversation with them at one of these cocktail bars in San Francisco. Have, go, go, try, go on a hike with them and see if they're capable of a normal organic conversation and see if they have anything to say outside of the profession. And honestly, a lot of the people, the, I would say at least 85% of the people, and I know this from experience and my father, who's been in the tech industry since tech began, honestly, mm-hmm. like tech, as we know it today, the computer science industry, mm. he, he would tell you these empty suits, man. There's so, just so many empty suits. He's like, you try to have a conversation with them. It's just you're talking to cardboard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, yeah, I know. They, they have they have nothing to say. And I'm not I'm not saying this to be critical of them. I'm saying that like maybe the, eventually they're going to need some of the things. They're going to need a lot of the things that are a lot of the ideas, a lot of the qualities, a lot of the practices, a lot of the mindsets, a lot of the haunting and conf. And, and, initially confusing, but ultimately highly beneficial ideas and questions that we're discussing in the sphere. Mm-hmm. And it, it, but that's only hap- that's only really being fostered now because a lot of people were doing this in isolation to, to some extent and just with some success. But now that we're coming together, we're going to have strength in numbers and we can flood the norm with volume. Mm-hmm. If we win the war of volume, then we're going to see a renaissance of men in everyday man. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And, and you know, you're, you're proving that point right now because you're, as you're sharing this perspective, it's putting a lot of pieces together for me than I needed. Um, because I, I, one of the things I spent a lot of time in the new age world in San Francisco. And I, I think that there's a lot of garbage in that world, obviously, uh, particularly uh, anti-male, anti-masculine garbage that's just kind of in the environment. Uh, but there's also a lot of good perspectives that are kind of buried if you know how to separate the ideology from the, the practices and the, and the terms. And what you're talking about makes me think of this word medicinal. And there's something very medicinal 
about these practices of masculinity. And that's been my experience as that I've been exploring them, cultivating them, uh, investigating, having conversations. I feel something inside myself being healed or being nurtured. I don't necessarily like these words because there's a feminine connotation, but there's a value to them as well. Being healed, being nurtured, being sustained, being supported, being cultivated. You know, pick your, pick your favorite uh, verb. And mm -hmm. as we begin with each other, you and me and with the men that we know in the communities that we're in, strengthening our bonds with each other, strengthening these ideas, strengthening, strengthening our rhetoric, our philosophy, our aesthetics, our bodies, our minds, we create this network of virtue that begins to have this warmth and this glow that makes me think of what Jack Donovan says in The Way of Men about honor, that honor has this timeless glow. Then when someone is honorable, they embody that and they, they glow with it. And that we have this medicinal quality with each other, with discovering masculinity as this healing force within ourselves, uniting us with things we've been separated from. And the men that you're describing, these empty suits, the, the, the LinkedIn people, the guys who can't go for a walk in nature, you know, or have a, have an everyday conversation. You know, I, I used to know many of those guys and in some ways I was a guy like that. And to be around for, for when those men, uh, if and when those men begin to encounter the emptiness that lives within them, that I think all of their professional, uh, LinkedIn style accomplishments can often mask when they're forced to confront that or when life presents them with circumstances that force them to confront that even outside of the class of clash of civilizations that I think we're looking at. But even outside of that, they look like they're divided from their inner natures and they're substituting what is cheap in terms of quote unquote accomplishment for what's priceless. When they go looking for what's priceless inside themselves, we as a community of men, uh, you and me and, and everyone around us and that this larger sort of ecosystem, this environment that we're embedded in have these medicinal practices and ideas. It's like, look, brother, I see that you're, I see that you're sick. We have things that can help you, whether that be an incline bench or a poem or combat sports or meditation or as you, as you, uh, said in one of your podcasts, green martyrdom, the, the noble, noble effort and sacrifice that all of these things may seem very, uh, very difficult or very alien, but in fact, they're very healing and very transformative. And I think as you're articulating this, what we'll be able to offer to these men, you know, you're showing me in an even more clear way that yes, we do have so much to offer to these men. If they can get to a point and put down their pride and begin to see a way to see it. And that's what I'm looking forward to this moment when these men can disarm and maybe we disarm too and say, look, we have practices that can help give you something that you didn't even know that you lost. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's a single moment because there's so many, there's so many men involved, mm -hmm. but these moments that could happen where, as you're saying, and you know, I think there is an element of pride to these. I don't want, I don't want to call them empty suits because these are our fellow men. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, the, these these people we mentioned before, very much Silicon Valley types, and having lived in New York City, these um, just more traditional business types, let's call them. Yeah. Um, I don't even, in, in some ways, I think there is pride there, and I, I've witnessed it without a doubt. But I think for a lot of them, it's just an autopilot. It's, they've sort of been corralled into this belief that all the things that we're trying to, sh that we would, that in these beautiful potential moments that I do believe are coming 
that we'd share with them in order to show them all these practices that can make them feel whole and actually cultivate themselves in all, all the fullest actuality possible. I think we'd, we'd start to realize that a lot of them really were just on an autopilot for whatever reason. Like they grew up a certain way. Um, they had, you know, pretty, they had most likely a pretty loving family, but, you know, pretty, I don't want to call them a square family, but just, you know, pretty simple family in terms of teaching. Well, you need to go to college. Like you need to go to college, you need to get a job, you need to make ends meet. And that's that. They didn't really know what they're missing in the first place. It's like they sort of start to look around and they see, that these messages aren't coming from almost like a presentation that you're saying like is, is new age. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you sort of presented, you know, if you're wearing, like, let's say the clothes of a hippie, the hippie came up to, you know, this, a man in a suit and he's saying, Hey man, you're missing out on all this. You know, you're missing out on all these things that are supposed to make you whole man. The guy would get in his cell phone and pretend to be on the phone and walk away without even saying anything. Mm-hmm. But if you saw a tangible, if you, if you saw a fellow man who were grounded mm-hmm. and were, did have that glow that you're talking about, you know, sit down and have a conversation with these people who I, I do believe eight time, at least eight times out of 10, it comes more from an autopilot instead of pride that they'd sort of start to realize what it is that they're missing in their life and within themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that those moments are the moments that we should now be seeking out in our everyday lives. Um, especially, you know, the content creators like yourself, um, content creators that, you know, I admire very much all of the sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to, to put, to, to steal the phrase of a bartending mentor of mine, he says, you know, we can't be so, so in love with the scene for lack of a better term, the way it is because new people want to get into it. We need to be gracious hosts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a really important transition for us. I think we need to be, we, we, we can't, on the flip side of things, as we begin to welcome these people who have these more dense, you know, LinkedIn resumes, but hollow inner lives and hollow beings, like they're not Renaissance men because they're only doing the LinkedIn thing. They're doing one thing. They're not Renaissance men. They're mm-hmm. plain and simple. That it doesn't sort of poison. There, there could be a case of poisoning the well. So we need to sort of protect these ideals as much as we can. And on the flip side of things, we can't be like, Oh, you know, you're not, we don't think you have this stuff. Like, I don't really think there's a place for that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be as a general rule, far more accepting because this is masculine healing. You know, it's not healing in terms of, you know, the new agey stuff that, and, and again, you know, I, I share the same sentiment about the new age stuff. Like there's a lot of benefits to it. There's a lot of wisdom there, but you have to really sort of separate the, the diamonds from the duds really. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, 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 yeah, you need to be, you need to be as welcoming as possible. You need to be willing to share the diamonds as much as possible with these fellow men. And I think that that transition is going to be pretty key for this community. Mm -hmm. And it's such a difficult thing to navigate as well, because there is some extent of, you know, we're men and as men, you see, you see a fellow man, like it's better to look at some men as, as um, they're essentially, you know, casualties of war, they're casualties of an ideological war 
they've, they've, they don't even know when they lost. Maybe they lost at birth based on their parents, just in terms of the ideology of the parents. Maybe they lost somewhere when they grew up, maybe when they, when they reached college and they internalized all these ideas. Who knows when? But they're, and to some extent, they're casualties of ideal, ideological war. And they also try to unwillingly, unknowingly propagate their viewpoints, which is, in some ways, I say offensive. I mean, like in in off like offense, like offense versus defense kind of way. Offensive, like you know, this this mind virus that has a hold of so many people has a quality. This ag- can have this aggressive quality, and so there naturally is within us this thumotic kind of like, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I think that's an aspect of of being a young man is that you have that, and that's like fundamentally a good thing, and that should mm-hmm. be channeled towards uh, an enemy or someone who opposes your way of life or, or who opposes your, um, your, your tribe, I guess you'd say. And so that's a good thing. But I, I think, you know, when it comes to the men and masculinity today and the renaissance of men is that the community uh, is men, period, full stop. You know, not just men who, who look like this or from this background or, or whatever. It's like, no, you are, you are my fellow man. And I have to remember that in addition to seeing you as a casualty of ideological war, in addition to the way that you may be projecting these ideas at me, and my gut response will be to come at you aggressively as well, that I have to check that and recognize that, like you say, that you're this individual is unconscious, but then also balance that with maybe sometimes these guys need to be pushed a little bit. You know, maybe, oh. maybe, you know what I mean? Go ahead, please. Oh, no, I'm so, I was just convinced in complete agreement with you what you're saying. Yeah, like um, to what extent is that? Do we need to cross that boundary? Like, okay, I want to be kind or nice, or nice isn't the word, but I want to be kind and say receptive. But like, maybe you do need a shove. Maybe I do need to let you know, hey, that wasn't cool, and make you feel like you just you said something wrong. You know, and I think there there is very much certainly a place for both. Mm-hmm. When I think when in taking approaches, you know, I I, I always. I always bring things back to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I, I mentioned this in at least one of my podcasts that F. Scott Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald's gauging for intelligence was the ability to balance two completely conflicting ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think the more balance of opposites that you can cultivate in your life, the better equipped you're going to be to deal with more situations at hand. And I think this is this is no exception. Mm-hmm. And I think this takes this takes precision. This takes discernment in in diagnosing which man needs the indirect effort, which man is so forward bent, so forward bent and narrow in in sight that they're blinded to any just positive, normal conversational information we can relay. That if you sort of start to combat, they're just gonna. It's it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how hard you punch like it's 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 you're not going to get through to him it's just going to have the opposite effect so there's going to be those cases where you need to plant a seed you need to plant a seed and then just sort of step off and that's an indirect effort mm-hmm. and over time he starts to think it's his idea <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean uh, fellow bartenders and I have manipulated drunken bar owners into thinking good ideas were their ideas for quite a bit. Inception. Um, like, you know what? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna tear down this wall so that way more people are like you know what? 
That was a great idea, man. I'm so glad you thought of that. Floated that to him for like four months. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. You figured it out. Yeah. Did. You know what, man? That's just a stroke of genius. I love what you're doing with the bar. I'm so glad to work here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like these indirect efforts. Yeah, it, it is manipulative. Like let's, some, maybe some people, I, I doubt for the listener base of this podcast, but just the general public, people are probably screaming, that's manipulative. I'm like, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But a lot of leadership is manipulative. A lot of positive attributes in cultivating newer norms is done through manipulation. On the flip side of things, we're going to see the people who aren't taking the steps. We're going to see the people who have been given the knowledge. We're going to see the people who've been having these series of awakenings, but they're not doing anything actionable. And so you, you essentially do need to call them out in, in, in various degrees, whether that be physically, it's like you're on a field somewhere, you hit them in a double leg takedown, like, man, you can't defend yourself. You've been mm-hmm. talking about not being able to defend yourself. You talk about being bullied growing up. Like, I'm not doing this to bully. I'm doing this like, hey, man, like this is in your hands. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you have to seriously diagnose which effort, which method is necessary to get the most, get the most men in this movement, the most men on our side. Every method should be used. Every every good method that is. That's locking someone in a cage and saying, "Are you going to join the Renaissance?" Like, obviously, that's not going to go very well. But you know, well, that's on the list. <laughs> very extreme cases. Very extreme cases. You know, only two percent of all cases. But you know, you're, it is there none. You're no longer a casualty of war. Now you're a prisoner of war. Yeah, welcome to war. <laughs> Great. This is this is your. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, as you're saying all this, I think of. Um, I think of a couple of different things. I think of the movie Inception. And in the movie Inception, the plot of the movie is Cobb needs to go into this guy's mind and implant the idea of breaking up his father's company, right? So it's essentially this ultimately hacking this dude's brain and doing this most manipulative thing on behalf of this Japanese banker. And so the average person would look at that and be like, wow, that's horribly manipulative and terrible. But the scriptwriter, who I think was Christopher Nolan, had to go to mm-hmm. pains to make it seem legitimate, like, oh, there's some threat to society if this guy doesn't break up. You know, like there's some higher purpose as opposed to just for, you know, the the Japanese businessman's profit motive. Like if he doesn't break up the company, he's going to run all these other small businesses out of ground or something, you know, something like that. You know, so it's like right. you, ha- you have to think about the you know, the, the, the larger justice of what you're doing and why. And then, but it also makes me wonder like, okay, so we're manipulating with the process of being very finely calibrated to our brothers, right? To, to an individual that we, that we know personally. And is that manipulation, you know, which is based in love for an individual, is that somehow worse than if you turn on the TV and you get carpet bombed? you know, with constant agenda coming through every possible, you know, sphere of influence that's available to you, television, food, radio, electromagnetic radiation. Like, are we, we're, are we talking about two completely different things? Is all manipulation wrong? Is, is it appropriate to counter one form of, you know, top down massive manipulation with a small amount of, of bottom up? Manipulation is that appropriate? I, I don't have a good answer for that, but that's just kind of what I'm thinking in response to what you're saying. I think with the realm of manipulation, I think this is one of the few cases where you can legitimately say the ends do justify the means. Hmm. Um, if you look at not just the ends justify the means, but 
it's take take for example, you know, a, a father, right? Mm-hmm. Father with a child. You're gonna float if you a lot of the times when you're trying to tell someone that something's beneficial for them. Not this is you know this isn't even just work with a child, right? If you keep trying to tell someone, tell someone, tell someone, tell someone, tell someone that something's good for them, like yeah, 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 I know, I'll get around to it in 17 years. Like no, like it's it's it, nine times out of ten it doesn't work. When you establish the proper parameters, you establish the proper environment. When you float certain seeds and get them to ask you about it. And you start supplying the information yeah. and you keep leading them down this road to the point where they ask for your help mm-hmm. and you sort of maybe blatantly or not so blatantly state the terms of the help. Like, okay, like for example, I'm getting a friend of mine in shape. I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to work out with me, like you need to be consistent. Like there's no point in me you, you saying to me. I'm doing the workouts and I'm doing the diet, but I'm not losing weight. I'm like, are you drinking your face off on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night? Well, yeah, of mm-hmm. course you're not losing weight. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. So you sort of establish the terms and you let them know the rule set. You let them know all the things at play regarding their desired destination. Now, we talk about programming. We talk about you turn on the TV, you turn on the doom scrolling, you turn on all these things, Right. Now, in an ideal world, you would turn on the news because it's supposed to be the news mm-hmm. of what the hell is going on in the world, not a gigantic spin towards another spin, towards another spin, towards this spiral of narrative that ultimately programs people into turning on each other, into destroying each other, thinking that the other side, the, the people that they're destroying are the actual enemy when really it's the puppet master behind everything. That's the worst kind of manipulation. Mm-hmm. But really, I mean, at the end of the day, almost all information is programming. Like you sort of can't get around that. And w- when you take in information, you can draw certain conclusions organically over time. But in trying to have a more targeted, more focused, more accelerated route towards desired destinations in terms of setting your mind up, in terms of setting your being up. Manipulation is the tool at hand in order to give this push-pull dynamic of I give you a little bit of information here or I leave a bit of subtext here or I leave one example of this far left field account of blank here and that helps you streamline your way towards this desired destination so ideally when we turn on the tv in an ideal world we turn on the news and we be programmed to hear like this is what's going on in the world and that's actually what's going on in the world and therefore either we're going to say literally you need to prepare this way or you're going to hear that information like i need to prepare my life this way so at the end of the day, everything's programming, but we're in a world where the norm is poisoning people. Mm-hmm. We're living in a norm where men are vilified. Mm-hmm. We're living in a norm where, you know, there's a concerted effort now to vilify the Caucasian race. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, a lot of people day in and day out are thinking that all white people are inherently evil because of this norm. And on the flip side of things, an even scarier thing is it's fostering white supremacy on the fringes now. Mm-hmm. And they think because it's coming at them so hard that 
they think that there's a literal enemy in some ways there is but they think it justifies killing their fellow man who has nothing to do with these sort of agendas at hand. Mm -hmm. So the programming is already so stacked up against us. We're living in a world controlled by, we, we, we can have abundant, interesting, taboo conversations about where all this malicious and malicious programming of poison is coming from. Mm -hmm. But I think the more important point at hand here is that's our norm. And we need to program against it and manipulation towards bringing our fellow men towards positive destinations and bringing our fellow men towards destinations of being able to help themselves and therefore being able to help more men and having that spiral into uh, programming for the positive. I think manipulation is absolutely 1000% justified in this regard mm -hmm. without a shadow of a doubt. I think there might also be a distinction lurking in here somewhere. Because anytime I find a word that can be spun in a negative or positive direction based on who's using it, I always feel like there's a, probably a better word to describe it just to make it clear, if only in my own mind. And so I agree with you. And I wonder if we're ta actually talking about the difference of power versus force. Uh, now, I haven't read this book. I know there's a famous book with that title, and it's uh, it's somewhere in my Amazon cart, which has probably thousands of books in it at the moment. But um, I understand the difference as, as maybe one of, like you said, push-pull, like power, uh, sorry, force pushes, like I'm going to force this on you, and power pulls. And so if we embody our values to the utmost, and which is one of the things that I really respect about your content and the way that you describe your life, especially your recent Instagram post with the, I think it was the 10 different practices you do every day. Like it was a text post maybe yesterday and these 10 different practices. And I was reading all those. I was like, oh, wow, those are all some really cute, cool, uh, you know, hur heuristics to work with during the day. And then you said at the end that you do all of them. I'm like, oh, okay, well, well then like that takes a, a pretty remarkable amount of discipline and discipline is the ultimate embodying of one's ideals. So when you embody your ideals, when you really like bring them into your body as an in into your practice and you, and you hold them there until you stay there, you emit like kind of like honor, this kind of glow or this gravitation that invites people in that creates this attraction that I think creates the sense of, uh, the sense of power that would generate someone to ask, you know, like, Hey, I've noticed that you've, gotten in shape or i noticed that you you know you've put out this content and i'm curious what you mean by this and that creates that creates the 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 someone being drawn to you or drawn to any of us to want a little bit of what we've got and i wonder if maybe that's what we're talking about maybe we're not talking about manipulation strictly where i go and i sneak into your dreams at night and i spin your top the other way and you wake up the next day you know instead versus instead you come and you say like hey this top i've got inside my head <clears throat> isn't spinning in the way that i want how can i fix myself and i can use you as an example and i wonder if that's probably closer to what we're talking about than the kind of active manipulation you know the puppet master kind of thing behind the scenes you know <sighs> I don't know. I think, I think your suspicion that there is a better word out there lurking, I, I, I for the most part, agree. I'm not entirely sure what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's giving me flashbacks to watching the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's like, there's a missing, Jeff Goldman, like, there's a missing document. There's signs of it anywhere, everywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but I know it's out there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, I think you're right. There is another word, but so 
I did a, a dual podcast with Evil Academy. Great, and, pod, great podcast. I love his content too. Thank you so much. And that 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 kid is wise beyond his years. For sure, He's twenty years old. It's gives gives you hope for the future. Oh, so and hard. I really I would like to actually get into that later, which I'm sure we will. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and we talked about we talked about how we influence like our friends, you know. And this is more I would say this is more tangible for his age bracket as well. It's like, how do I get my friends to stop, you know, jerking off the Pornhub four times a day and spending hours playing Fortnite or whatever video game the kids are playing these days? Um, <laughs> right. Like. And I said to him, I said, you know, if you keep saying, man, you need to go to the gym, like you got to go to the gym and you got to get stronger. I'm like, dude, that guy's going to drink his face off and watch more porn at, at that age. Like, it's just, you tell them one thing, they do the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think we have two tools at our disposal. The first was, I said, the indirect effort of planting seeds, this manipulation I'm talking about mm-hmm. on the flip side of things. I also spoke upon what you're talking about, being, being an example, embodying. So it's there, then it can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I think you said it. I think I think you said the word. The word is influence. Like, and I think I'm thinking yeah. about I'm thinking about yeah. word roots, like manipulation, uh, man, man, manipulation. Like the root word for hand is man. There's a because uh, I studied word roots when I was in eighth grade. Thank God for Miss Alexander who taught me all these the roots of all these words. So manipulation comes from hand. So there's some. There's some hand connotation there versus influences fluidity, like a flow, like flowing into somebody versus manipulation, like hand. Maybe that's the distinction is manipulation versus influence. So that, make, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And you just saying manipulation in the hand and the essence of that compared to the essence of influence and fluidity is just, and I, I think a key, a key detail involved is a manipulation. You're, you're crafting, you're imposing an idea. Mm-hmm. of this person's identity on them through various, you know, manipulative way, like manipulative methods. Whereas if you just, you're trying to have them receive these ideas that are beneficial to them and they do what they will with them. Mm-hmm. Like they do use them, but use them in their own unique way to foster their identity. I think that's a much more positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, I don't, I mean, the same thing goes like a more, a more literal example, I think that can sort of better describe this as a, as a, a better descriptive parallel. It's like, um, when you, when you're a martial artist and you choose a coach and you know, there are those coaches who say, this is the only way you got to Like I, I, a perfect example. I had this one coach that he was very old school. He's a fantastic coach in terms of technique, just fantastic. Uh, he was from Brooklyn back when Brooklyn was Brooklyn. And he said, you got to want to hurt somebody. You got to, you know, you can be a Christian, you know, you can have all those morals and I'm a Christian, but you got to want to hurt somebody. I was like, I really don't believe that, honestly. Mm. Like, I mean, maybe some people need, need to want to hurt somebody. I've I've met those guys. That's, that's, that's abundantly clear. Watch, watch enough MMA fights. Like, oh, that guy likes to hit people. Like Mm -hmm. that guy needs to hurt people. In my mind, so my sort of philosophy behind it was, a martial artist equal parts soldier and artist. If they're too much the artist, they get destroyed. If they're too much the soldier, they're too much the soldier, they destroy themselves. Um, and I think a phenomenal embodiment, he, he, he gets ripped on left and right, which is ri- ridiculous, um, is Kamaru Usman, the current welterweight champion. Mm-hmm. If you listen through his Joe Rogan podcast, he describes his mentality. Right before he steps into the cage, he prays for both himself and his opponent and the families of both 
saying, I hope we both get out of here okay, back to our families. Mm. But as soon as I step in here, I'm the Nigerian nightmare. And you and I have agreed to better ourselves, better each other by trying to take each other's heads off. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, no, there's nothing being held back in the actual fight itself. But ultimately, you are praying that no one, no one leaves there with any permanent injuries. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, a, it's a true balancing act. Mm-hmm. So in terms of coaching and in terms of finding a coach that's your fit, and a co- some coaches will try to take someone who's a, who really has the essence and the mindset and the skill set and the physical attributes to fight a certain way. And they'll try to cookie cutter like, no, I only know how to teach fighters this way. You got to jab like this. You need to circle left like this. You need to leg kick like this. And this coach could be world renowned. And the fighter could be like, it must be me. It must be me who's wrong because he's, he, he's the world renowned coach and I'm just the new up and coming fighter. Mm-hmm. So, Whereas a great coach would recognize, a truly great coach would recognize the strengths and try to give that fighter, that martial artist, all the tools to see the highest potential possible of all those attributes physically, mentally, tactically um, that they have. And I think that's, that's the key differentiation here with, between manipulation for a fellow man and influence, like you said. I think you, you hit the nail perfectly on the head hmm. that we're going to float all these. We're going to plant seeds indirectly in speech. And we're also going to embody the benefits of these core principles Mm -hmm. that we're trying to share with our fellow man that we want them to take on their own and run with Mm -hmm. to be the best versions of themselves, not be an idea that we have of them. I love it. I love it. Because, because I can actually see as you're describing that there's room for actually both. Like what I like about influence is that influence is, outcome independence. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to say the things I say and do the things I do and embody what I embody. And that will exert this gravitational pull over the men that I come into contact with to guide them to their inner selves. And maybe though, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that you can throw out every tool out of the tool bag. Maybe there is room for some really subtle light forms of, of manipulation. If only in conversation, I like what you said about Usman stepping into the ring that we've agreed that we're going to better ourselves in this environment. And there's a, there's a, there's a notion of consent. Like we're both in here for the same purpose, right? We've, you've agreed to come into this ring with me and I've agreed to come into the ring with you. And we've mutually agreed that we're in this the separate world with a separate set of rules where we can try and take each other's heads off and that it's bounded in terms of space and time. And then we leave and we go back to being friends. It's one of the things I love about MMA. These people actually, or any combat sport, really, you see people literally trying to take each other's heads off. And then when it's over, hugging and high-fiving and, you know, it's like, wow, what an incredibly powerful experience. And in the same way, we can see that, you know, in terms of, in terms of conversation with fellow men, trying to get them to improve and, and become, as you, as you say, like a great coach isn't trying to turn you into the latest model of some other fighter. They're trying to turn you into the best fighter that you are capable of being that may have nothing to do with that other person. Like you may have your method that brings great things out, but at a certain point you have to customize it for this person that you're working with to turn them into the fighter their body and their temperament and their genetics even wants them to be. And so maybe there's room in there for influence and maybe used in the right way, used really skillfully, there's room for 
just the, and this is where even the word manipulation needs a further distinction, you know, where some sort of like just a very light touch to push them in the right direction. Maybe there's room for that for both of those skills for manipulation and influence used in the, in the right skillful way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly like a yin and yang aspect mm-hmm. and for sure. It's like you have, I mean, I had this, I had this argument with, um, you know, when I was, when I was bartending, in terms, in terms of embodying, one thing I started to notice. So I went through a period where I was celibate for four years by choice. Yeah, you know? I heard that. And, I, I, and, and you, you went for two years without ejaculating as well, right? Yeah, that was, that, that, <laughs> I mean, it took two years of those four years to be able to get to that point. So, so you, waited uh, for, you were celibate for two years and then the, the, second, the second two years you spent not ejaculating. Yes. Did you, like, how powerful were the lasers that shot out of your eyes? <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> Could you see through walls? I mean, the so I'll give you a perfect example. I was just, I was dialed up to 11 all the time. And I, yeah. I knew I'd hush that intensity, but the intensity was always there. Oh man. Was, was like, was, was always there. Um, like me screaming at my reflection at the gym at three in the morning, my best friend saying, the only person that can destroy you is you going through a very <laughs> tough workout. <laughs> Wow. And my best friend's like, I don't, you know, sometimes I don't even know if I could be your friend, man. Cause it gets, it gets scary. Like, <laughs> yeah. After, yeah. I mean, I go for, I, I think the longest I've gone is like 36 days and I literally like, I could barely sleep <laughs> at that point. I was like, I'm, I'm going a little crazy two years. I, I really don't know. Maybe my hair would grow back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- th- there's certainly an abundance of energy and it takes getting used to sort of harnessing that and guiding it accordingly yes, yes. um because you know that that's that's a lot of the reason like sometimes the reason why guys release isn't because you know they're aroused by some girl they're just like i just i'm, I'm seething right now and i just gotta just gotta get it like they were in some way or the other yeah but it was awesome like wow. i would wake up i would fold the yoga mat that i sleep on and I'd, I'd run to the shower, take a cold shower, just for a split second to wake myself up. I'd, I'd get out the door and do a very violently paced run. Then I'd come back and I'd pray and I'd take another shower. And it's just, when I, the perfect example, I'd get to the bar for a Friday or Saturday night. And this is a high volume craft cocktail bar and I get there. Wait, which neighborhood in San Francisco were you in? I have to know. I can't disclose that. <laughs> okay, okay, that's fair. Was <laughs> it, was it? Because you, you can start to nail these things down. No. Uh, was it, was it the Marina? No, no. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I say no because I already get annoyed from the one off. Like, can I have a water? Like, thank you <laughs> so much. Like you're, what are you? Like, are you like, Ital- I'm busy is what I am. <laughs> yes. Okay. Like, are you like Italian or are you like Arabic? Like, like please, please just stop. That's, um, that's, yeah. I just had the most violent flashback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I rejected multiple job offers in the Marina for that reason. Like you make 500, I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to throw a glass or something. No, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but I would get to the bar and I would just be, always be ready to go. Like I would always put myself through my toughest conditioning workout before a Saturday night shift. And I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for the shift. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for the five to two shift. And I get there just always ready to go. But this one guy who's a very, very good friend of mine, but him and I would verbal spar as part of our friendship. And I get, you, you can tell he's chilling. And I get there and he's like, I'm like, all right, gentlemen, let's get it going. He's like, no, dude, Arthur, dude, we're just hanging out, man. Like it doesn't need to be zero to 60 every time. Like, 
And it's like, you know who you are? You're like crank. You know, like from Jason State, I'm like, brother, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Now let's get it going. Um, <laughs> and you know, I would get everything set up. I, when I was doing my barback training, I didn't know that I I, 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 I was in this period of the second two years. And I had already gotten some training. And I'm barbacking for four bartenders. And they had this one, one of the previous barbacks. Um, basically, they say, you're, you're going to train him a little bit if he needs help. It's the first Friday shift. And there's no bartenders behind the bar, so I'm trying to talk to customers to make sure but by the time the bartenders get back there, the customers aren't disgruntled, but I'm multitasking. He's like, uh, hey, bud, why don't we, get set, why don't we uh, not focus on that gets up here? And I didn't realize I said it like this. I turned to him and said, I'm doing what needs to be done. And he's like, oh, hey, oh, okay, never mind. Yes. Um, the, the intense. <laughs> you didn't even mean for it to be intense. You just live. <laughs> You live yeah, either in in park or, or in fifth gear. There's no, all the other gears are gone. Absolutely. And, and, um, and so my, the, the reason what I'm getting into my, my roommate with uh, this guy who became my roommate, became one of my closest friends. He said, you are always moving. I just, I just, I, you can't not be a barback anymore because you make my, fucking job so easy you being a barback i get you're gonna be a great bartender but fuck man like you need to train some barbacks because i do not want to have to do this grunt work because i don't know how mm-hmm. um and he said like do you ever do you ever like sit and relax and i was like mm, no, no i am i am relaxed i, I am relaxed. i was like sir i have what I, I, I again these these statements that people will repeat back to me when they see me again i didn't realize where i was at in this time yeah and it's like you looked at me dead in the eyes and said i have one speed sir and then sprinted off somewhere i was like okay <laughs> it, so was, it was hilarious so good some of the best some of my favorite stories of life were from this period of time i can imagine um, but me being so you're in a bar environment. People people go to bars for a number of reasons: to drown their sorrows, to escape, to have good conversations. Oftentimes, for reasons they're not even aware of. But one of the main reasons is to get laid. That's there's just no way around that. Well, yeah. Um, and you know, me being an Orthodox Christian, <laughs> oh, I very man. much just focus on martial arts and living, living like uh, as I said before in the Green Martin podcast, trying to live that life. Yeah. You know, I was trying to embody that. Um, you know, I'm getting attention from girls that I, I truly was not seeking and did not want. And that's why mm-hmm. me listening to the Joe Rogan podcast with Henry Rollins just made me realize like, this is the guy mm-hmm. like he's, he's, I'm happily engaged now, but at the time I, I thought I was going to keep going like this. And Henry Rollins in his fifties and Joe Rogan asked him, he said, well, what's it like when you get in a relationship? And he's like, I, John, I just can't hack it. Mm-hmm. I just, just, I just can't It's like, what do you mean? It's like, I just, you know, come up to like, what are you doing Friday night? What do you want to do? It's like, I don't know. You want to watch me write for four hours? Like mm-hmm. it's that response. I was like, Oh, okay. This, this sounds, this sounds familiar. This hits home right now. And so I'm at this bar, bar backing at the time. So usually when you're the lower position, they don't look at what you have to say immediately, but people started to take notice that I was saying, girls like, you want to, you know, like alluding to a hookup or alluding to going out. I was like, Oh no, thanks. Like, what do you mean? Like, I, I, are you taking them? Like, no, no, I just, I just don't take like, oh, well, we don't have to date. I'm like, no, that's fine. It's like, well, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, I'm going to go to the gym after this. Like, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, they started to notice. And I just like what this same guy I mentioned, the crank guy, he said, 
man, you know, Arthur's over there. Look at that smile on his face. He's smiling, doing his bar backing job. He's hearing about all this stupid drama, all this girl drama we're going, making our lives more complicated. And he's sitting pretty over there. Mm-hmm. You know, he might be onto something. And I was like, I am. I feel great. <laughs> you're, you're trying to deal with Roxanne over there. And guess what? I, uh, I'm going to the gym after this and I'm going to better myself. I was like, okay, so hang on. So you, you'd actually rather lift, you, you'd rather lift weights than get laid. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? It's like, well, you you look at you guys. You're constantly relying on like this next lay. Just like mm, that chick over there. Like, oh, that girl, that girl could have my tips for that. I'm like, no girl could have my tips for the night. No girl could have. Uma Thurman could not have my tips for the night. Okay. I don't care who it is. And so over time and the, the one who mentioned the, the guy I mentioned before who became, he, uh, he mentioned like you, we need to train new barbacks because I do not my, want my job to get harder. Him and I became roommates. And I think for the longest time, he didn't believe he thought I secretly was, you know, hooking up with girls left and right. Mm-hmm. And, he was like, okay, he gave, I saw the thought in his head. He said, okay, he's got nowhere to run now. He lives here, okay? So he's going to get exposed one way or another. And he's like, dude, there is, this is summer by this time. He's like, dude, there are some fine-ass girls over by the pool. I think you should go say hi. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to go to the gym. And he had this look at his face like, oh, my God. He's been serious for the past nine months. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And he was just dumbfounded. Wow. And so over time, this sort of discipline that I was, I'm getting somewhere with all these outlandish stories. Oh no, this is fantastic. Like I'm, I'm just, in, I'm, I'm just vibing with all of this, but yeah, continue. Oh, okay, good, good. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. Awesome. Um, he, 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 like everyone sort of started to notice that this, this guy loved playing with fire. Very good looking guy. Sort of looked like Clark Kent. Um, you know, former Marine. This is your roommate or this is you? Yeah. Before, uh, my roommate. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's also a writer. He, he, honestly, if you looked at him and I, like just in, in essence, he's like, you guys grow up together. You guys are like brothers. Mm-hmm. And he really is like, I have, he's one of my three closest friends. And if you looked at the likeness, like, oh, those two probably grew up together. Yeah. Um, despite a, a pretty big age difference. And he, he loved playing with fire with girls. He loved the drama because he loves fiction to it, to his detriment. And he says, I'm sleeping with this girl. This girl, her best friend, but they're, we we all knew they're all in this circle of the bar. And he, I was like, "Why do you do this to yourself?" Yeah, it's not going to end that well. And he's like, "I am playing with fire." I'm yeah. like, "You act like this is an epiphany for you. You've told me many stories of these sticky situations with girls, and then they come knocking on your door, screaming to this giant escalated situation. You love you love it. Don't 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 sit here and pretend like this just happens. Like I." Mm. You know, you're the only one who can talk like this to me. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm, you think I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, man, it must be really tough. Like, no, like, please. Yeah. And th- it came to a point where he had one ex of his show up to the bar and sit in front of his well and just constantly try to talk to him, get it back. And he's getting so annoyed. I'm like, hey, you want to switch wells? And he's like, yeah, please, please, thank you. And I'm taking a break and he comes outside to smoke a cigarette. He says, you know, I'm starting to understand your no girl policy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to do it. I'm probably not, but I'm starting to understand it. And I noticed over time, more and more guys were asking me about church. More and more time, more and more guys were asking me about the gym. More and more guys were asking me books to read. 
they're asking me advice for certain very difficult situations in their life. And that was sort of my lab, especially in a bar world. It's this is chaotic world where like the norm is degenerate. There's no way around it. Like there's all these silver linings, but it really is degenerate at the end of the day. Like it's a great place to congregate. Great conversations can be had. Great friendships can be made. But these are the, the bigger silver linings in the overall environment. And what I started to notice over time, because I planted a bunch of seeds over time, because I embodied everything over time, people, you know, some people initially is like, you're not going to the gym after this, like at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> and he's like, you want to ride home? And I was like, no, can I get a ride to the gym? And they're like, okay. And they see the gym is 24 hours and it's a smaller gym. And I go in and they're like, and I start jumping rope and he's like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he actually is he's going where the fuck he's saying he's going to go mm-hmm. so that was my lab for planting seeds and that was my lab for embodying all these ideals and that's i think that's maybe why i can write on this at this point i think that's maybe why i can speak on this as these being methods that you know in a time where i didn't really think there was going to be a renaissance of men i was thinking very orthodox like we live in a fallen world and we're the <laughs> undercover secret agents get to, to get to the app. as c.s lewis uh described it that way in mere christianity which gave me a giggle i'm like man that, you know this isn't really c.s lewis's kind of fictional forte but right I, exactly I'll, I'll, I'll run with it yeah um but um yeah that that's i think that's why i know these two methods work but i think yeah i, th- I think those are those are, those are the methods that we need to be using Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my podcast with Arthur Dane of Blood and Rain. I'm very excited to share with you some big news. The Renaissance of Men podcast now has its first official sponsor, Volition Training. Volition was founded by Derek Arellano, who is my first podcast of 2021 called Fitness and Your Higher Self. To this day, it's still in my top five episodes, along with such heavyweights as Jack Donovan, Tanner Guzzi, and The Howling Void. Derek and I have gotten to know each other since then and I've trained with him many times. Together, we've assembled a special program called the Volition Renaissance, his most premium offering, targeted specifically for Renaissance of Men listeners. It's a 12-week, all-encompassing online program designed by Derek for your personal needs. It involves a training and nutrition plan tailored for your goals, whether they be weight loss, mass gain, sports performance, or rehabilitation. But Derek also goes beyond that, helping you establish and track habits that contribute to your fitness like getting regular sleep, reducing screen time, stretching, or drinking water, all of which reduce the tendency to fall back on excuses. The Volition Renaissance also includes three PDFs written by Derek about his training philosophy and the why behind what he's recommended, so you're not just flying blind. Plus, his training program integrates with MyFitnessPal, so he can supervise your eating and make adjustments, whether you eat too much or too little, like me. But most importantly, you get Derek's personal time and attention. No matter where you are in the world, not just in Phoenix, you can learn from his wisdom and expertise gained from being a top 10 U.S. bodybuilder. The purpose behind this offering isn't just to get you in shape, but to create your physical renaissance. Because as I've personally discovered, true fitness goes much deeper than lifting heavy things and eating better food. It requires a total shift in mindset, and I know Derek can get you there. This program is for men who are motivated, ready to make a change, and join the renaissance of men. So to sign up for Volition Renaissance, head over to Derek's Instagram account at Train Volition. That's Train, 
V-O-L-I-T-I-O-N, Train Volition, to learn more about him and his bodybuilding story or his website, volitiontraining.com. And check out my podcast episode with him. Then send Derek a message and mention Ren of Men this week for a 10% discount this kickoff week only as we start this exciting program. Once again, that's Train Volition on Instagram or volitiontraining.com and mention Ren of Men for 10% off. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the podcast with Lord Arthur Dane of Blood and Rain. Well, so this gets me really interested in when I listened to your first podcast, the, the debut Blood and Rain podcast, and you talked about how you were working in tech and you were feeling very disillusioned and you looked around and you were reading about these heroes and I'm paraphrasing a bunch of different aspects of your story, but then you, you realize that that wasn't the life that you were leading and that wasn't the life that most men were leading and you decided to leave that world and pursue a more strenuous life. And I was really interested in that because it's not many men spontaneously red pill themselves. Most of us get exposed to some amount of information that we have to reorient our lives around that's credible or like we're discussing the difference between manipulation and influence. There's someone around us who influences us in a positive way, like you're talking about doing with these guys. You know, there people are asking you for books to read, or they're asking you for information or for advice. That's the that's influence that you're exerting over your environment. That's exactly what we're talking about, where you're waking these guys up. You know, you're emitting that that gravitational attraction, or you're to women as well, who, who probably saw you as this unconquerable. You got it. I mean, there's there's got to be the groups of women who are like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one that gets him. I mean, you know that that happened at least once. Um, but yeah. so you know, yeah, exactly. So you're influencing your, and we can talk about that. But I think this is more interesting. So you're you're influencing your environment in that way, and possibly even manipulating, although possibly not not intentionally. But you're still exerting this. We'll we'll stick the influence. But it from listening to this podcast, it doesn't sound like from the way you articulate your story that you were similarly influenced or manipulated. That you had this kind of realization within yourself that something was myth- missing, and you went looking for it. And I, I don't know that I've ever heard that story because so many men come into this Renaissance movement because they've been, as the vernacular goes, red-pilled in some way. But I don't meet many men who like just wake up and recognize something is missing and I'm going to go find out what it is. And then they actually succeed in doing so and don't fall off the path. Like, am I understanding that correctly? Because you also say very, very, uh, it's not like very great things about your dad, that your dad is a very awake and aware individual and, and tech in the seventies was very, very different from what it's become. There was real artistry and pioneering, you know, sort of cowboy mentality going on back then. Like, you know, there's something really exciting and now it's become very, you know, packaged and, you know, branded and trademarked. And I think they had more of a free spirit in the seventies, certainly with the influence of the sixties, not far behind them. So it sounds like your dad is a pretty aware guy and influenced you positively but it sounds like there's something else, some other chemical reaction that was going on inside you. And it, did I understand that correctly, or were there was there more to that story? Because that's an incredible story, one way or another. No, you're exactly right. Honestly, wow. um, you know, to, before I get into that, to touching upon my father, um, I mean, I learned so much from my father. I learned from my father every single day. Hmm. You, you know, there's that there's that trope, like I. No one's smarter. No one's smarter, stronger, tougher than my dad. But I, 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 I'm 
25 years old and I have yet to meet someone smarter than my father. I'm, I'm sure they're out there. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying my, my father's the smartest man on earth, but I've, I've yet to meet someone, at least in pure analytical processing power. Um, his level of logic that he cultivated from a young age. My, my, my father, he was born in communism. Hmm. He's a full-blooded Spaniard who the family had recently moved from the Canary Islands to Cuba right when Castro hit. And he narrowly escaped with my grandparents and my aunt. And it's actually, the, the, it's another little side quest story, but um, to honor my father, I think I should tell it. Mm-hmm. Um, my, um, my father's side is a pretty eclectic side uh, from the Canary Islands and other parts of Spain initially, or originally. Um, there's Spanish civil war snipers, there's journalists, there's engineers, um, there's writers. And so they, they came from the Canary Islands and my great, my, my grandfather, um, was mechanical mind. He was an engineer. Uh, wasn't, he wasn't a full engineer engineer, but he had some training. And one day a communist officer, you know, basically say the Cuban equivalent of a commissar says, he com- comes to my grandfather's house in Cuba and says, at gunpoint, come fix my refrigerator. You can fix things. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was like, all right, cool. I, I can't really say no, can I? <laughs> Just lead with your strongest argument. <laughs> a gun. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the way it was, unfortunately. That is, uh, that is power versus force. That would be the force side of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he, he said to my grandfather, yeah, and my grandfather complied. He's trying to fix his fridge. My grandfather tells him, I'm going to, okay, if you're going to shoot me, shoot me. If not, put the gun down. Let me fix your fridge in peace. Oh. And he did so. And you're getting to the point where my, fast forward, my grandparents and my father and my aunt are preparing, or they're at Havana Harbor, or there's, there's somewhere. I don't remember the exact details of how they're getting out of the country, but they're about to leave the country. And they're stamping the papers. And they stop at my dad because he's a young boy and they want to keep all the boys for the revolution. So my dad is about to get left behind as a young boy. He basically be raised by the government. His voice comes, hey, move, get out of the way. Takes a stamp, stamps my father's papers. He looks at my grandfather in the eyes and says, do you remember me? And it was a man whose refrigerator he fixed. Wow. And if it wasn't for that, my father never would have, they, they went to Venezuela and then they got to, they got to Miami, of course, and then Ohio. And then moving from Ohio to New York city where they settled, um, was the same day that Kennedy got shot. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. Just to talk about like my, my father is the dying embodiment. Well, he's not dying. He's, he's thriving right now. He's boxing. Yeah. Mm. Bless him. Um, but he is the embodiment of a dying American dream, the dying positives of the American dream, because came from communism, went to New York City, grew up with essentially nothing. Like my, my, my grandparents eventually became more and more well off due to my grandfather being a General Motors exec. Mm-hmm. But he had nothing. So he had to grow up being an engineer. He had to grow up. He wants a bike. Well, he found uh, an old shitty bike and then he finds the factory where they make bike seats. He finds a factory where they make uh, handlebars or they find the factory where they make 
forks and he, he, he stands in the doorway of each of these factories. And so the one guy says, what do you want, kid? Like, can you do this for my bike? And they say, yeah, sure. Goes dumpster diving for parts. He reads a book of a compiler, a compiler book for the early days of computer programming at 15 years old, reads it a million times until he gets it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my father. Mm-hmm. That's my father. And I learned how to use logic. I learned how to be calm. I learned how to keep my word. I learned how to be, um, really to take damage as opposed to lashing out at people because my father was abused growing up. And my father said, if I can't raise my son without raising a hand to him, I have lost. Mm-hmm. So I owe so much to my father. Mm-hmm. I owe so much to my mother. I owe so much, I owe so much to both my parents. Well, my next question was going to be about your mother. Cause now I have to know about your mother too. My mother um, came from more privileged means, to be honest. Um, she's of Sicilian, Piedmontese, and French Basque ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And she was actually born in the Bay Area, but like days later, moved to Mexico and moved to Argentina and to Puerto Rico. And then finally, she spent her formative years in Fort Lauderdale. And my, mo- my, my mother's side of the family is full of artists and painters and professors um and boxers and restaurateurs um in italy france and argentina and there may be a pretty serious tie to a soccer club down in buenos aires a soccer club i will not name (laughs) you start to do some digging you'll start to figure some things out Um, i'll leave it at that breadcrumbs are being Um, laid to the mysterious identity of arthur dane Yeah. Um, but my mother, she, she, I had two uncles. One became an engineer, but he's also a bassist, very talented bassist. And the other is a composer. And, but they're both living on my, my grandfather who out of everyone in my family, I'm most like in essence is my grandfather on my mother's side. Who's a, who's a self-made man who was an engineer and then a salesman. He lived through Juan Peron. He was going to school. Um, you know, with buildings being bombed due to unrest. Um, that's just the way it was back then. Uh, one of the last conversations I had was an interview uh, of him for my AP U.S. history, oddly enough, class mm. about that. And he told me all about that. Um, and right before he, he died right before I moved to England and I felt him guide my every step, honestly. Because um, I really, I, I finished growing up in England. Not in the Bay Area, but in England. That's where I be- really became, you know, the foundation of who I am, um, at For least act- tangibly. Acting school, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. And why um, you didn't move there okay. with your parents? No, no, I went there. I went there alone. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, but my yeah, my um, my mother, they were they were she finished high school in Fort Lauderdale, and my grandparents were very well off. They were always very privileged because they had a lot of money and my grandfather and grandmother had nothing. So now like, right, we're going to spend the money because we have the money. Plain and simple. Um, but they raised my, my grand, my grandparents were avid readers. Um, they all were, they're always seeking culture. They're always seeking art. They're always seeking beauty. Mm-hmm. It's very much tied to the cultures, the ethnicities that they came from and Argentina, Buenos Aires being the, the, the Paris of South America. Mm, I've been there. Uh, I'm, I'm itching to go. I'm, I've been itching to go for a very long time. Um, and they, uh, they said, we're moving to Spain. 
And my mom says, I don't want him to spin. And she says, well, you're, you're cut off if you don't. And she's like, okay. <laughs> Excellent. And they're like, okay, well, yeah. And they don't believe her. She drives in the airport. They didn't believe her until they like got out of the plane. They're like, oh, fuck. My mom was bouncing around between Fort Lauderdale and Overtown, Miami. I, 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 I may be misquoting, but I remember her living in a very bad neighborhood of Miami, which may have well been very been Overtown. Um, and she... She started at Blank Company as a receptionist and she worked her way up until she met my father and they moved to New York City. Um, and my mother is a very talented singer. My mother's an opera singer, in fact. Oh. Um, yeah. And she, my, you know, it's funny. My, my, my mother more raised me with like the, the brunt, like, why do you have a C in English? Like smash his plate, <laughs> you know, um, very the Italianata coming up. Uh-huh. Whereas my father was just like, he's, he's, he's going to like outwit me. He's like, why are you doing this? You're doing this because ABCD. And he's like, how did you know? I'm like, because I know you like, <laughs> you're like, you look at me like you're being stupid. Stop. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's two very, and they're two very type A people. Sure. Yeah. Very type A. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the ethnicities at hand and the backgrounds at hand, very fiery. Yeah. Very sure. fiery. Well, it shows up in you too. <laughs> Not that I'm I think, not, not that I think you're type A, but I mean, but the, the amount of, the amount of positive structure that it sounds like you had as a kid has enabled you to know how to create positive structure for yourself in your, in your late teens and early twenties at a time when so many kids who don't grow up with positive structure, like I didn't grow up with positive structure. I grew up with negative structure that I had to learn to accommodate for and swim in. So my early twenties, you know, as soon as you took that, as soon as you took a negative structure away, which is essentially toxic in nature, um, which is defensive. I just kind of fell to pieces for a good portion of my life and then to put myself back together. But it sounds like, you know, you had the, you had the, both these parents feeding this positive structure into you, which enabled you to create it for yourself. Certainly. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's some things I learned from them. There's, I'm not going to get into the negative sides of that of course, of level course. of every nature um, that, you know, I had to figure out for myself and navigate accordingly. But it was just an overwhelming net positive for both of them. And I have nothing but love and adoration and just thankfulness and humility from. Um, but the I was but this, on the flip side of things. I was an only child. Oh, wow. And. The, 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 the parents are, you know, they can only be there so much. So I had to learn much on my own, mm-hmm. much on my own. And I think that may be where you're saying like this became, this is more organic in terms of this quote unquote self red pilling or self realization or mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, there was glimpses of it when I was in drama school in England because, you know, the UK has the highest level of acting in the English speaking world. And I say in the English speaking world because I've encountered French, German, Russian, and Japanese actors in particular, who are just immensely talented, just immensely talented. And in Russia, they train to be an actor for six years. They look at the three year intensive training in England, like how could you possibly train? You're just getting warmed up. Yeah. I was like, we're just getting warmed up. This is, this is the preliminary efforts that uh, it takes to be such a vessel of checkoff. Um, so, you know, when I got to drama school, the, 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 the caveat with this is if you start to read a lot of English plays, it's like, hmm, was that nudity really necessary? <laughs> was this sexual parallel really necessary? English How much perverted, 
ulterior motives bled its way into this piece of work. Is this is when you say English English plays? Do you mean uh, like uh, in terms of England or English in terms of written in English and written in the language English? Um, both, but primarily in England. In England, so the um, actual plays written in England by say British plays. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like there, there, there's one, there's one play which is like one of the most brilliant plays I've ever read and seen, which is Equus, and uh, one of the roles is uh, originated by Leonard Nimoy, the mm-hmm. uh, Spock. Um, and so that that play, it's, it's wholeheartedly necessary for the nature of the play, but a lot of it was very gratuitous, mm-hmm. and I started to notice that they, you know, six out of the ten plays, my the year I spent in drama school, um, for the the third years who were you know. The third year of drama school is all performance. So it's all you do is perform in place and do showcases for agents. It's like showtime. You got nothing else to learn. Just go. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I noticed six out of the 10 plays had nudity and it was only necessary in like maybe two of them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you need to be willing to get naked or you're difficult. I'm like, they're not going to fucking expel me because I don't want to get naked on stage. Mm-hmm. Like it's me being very American. Like, hey, you're not going to do this. Fuck you guys. Like we fought a war. <laughs> That's all coming up, you know? Exactly. Um, but yeah, it was like the, at the end of the day, the schools need the students more than the students need the school because then they won't be putting out a product. Right. So I'll play hardball to do that. But also at the same time in drama training, they notice what you avoid. They notice your fears. So I didn't necessarily want to be put in like this, this like nude scene for skill practice for some weird sexual connotation. So in any exercise, like I didn't shy away from like these sexual dynamics of women. So it's like I would. I would jump at these things first. Like, Oh, he's not scared of that. So like, I recognized the methods in which they diagnosed and I like sort of manipulated them accordingly. Um, but I sort of noticed like there is a, there was like a level of degeneracy and there was a level of like unhealthy detachment that was prevalent in the acting world that made me feel very disenfranchised, honestly. Um, and I, I still loved acting, but I needed something. And that this is the same time I started Muay Thai. Um, so I started attending this Muay Thai gym in London, um, that really gave me that grounding. And I, I, I fell, I, I threw, I threw two punches and a kick and on a set of pads and a free pad session. I was like, I love, I'm doing this the rest of my life. I'm going to be Clint Eastwood, 90, 90 years old, trying to kick pads. I'm doing this the rest of my life playing. Just that's, I knew right then and there. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of began the, the, to have the preliminary sort of seeking to seeking the most difficult route, seeking hardship, seeking struggle to come out the other side, a far greater version of myself. Like that began in drama school mm-hmm. because it was you're in the studio nine to six, sometimes eight to eight every day. And before and after I was doing Muay Thai or lifting weights or running in the rain. Um, that's where I really, really the hyper discipline you see in like those 10 protocols that I posted on Instagram mm-hmm. that, that started there. I didn't really have that beforehand. Like I was more of like a wild man, punk kid. Like, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, I'll, I'll do well in the classes I like, not the classes I don't like. Like mm-hmm. that's stupid mentality of mine. Um, but I made top grades in all my classes that year in drama school for the most part. Um, and that's where the hyper-discipline began to, began to be cultivated. And what I would have really started to learn I didn't like was 
I mean, <laughs> a lot of people were starting drama just in the real eyes. Like, no way, man, you went to a drama school and you're surprised people are being dramatic. And honestly, I, w- I was surprised when I got there. Because I was so idealistic going into it. Like, mm. I'm going to go to the places where the greatest actors train. And it's going to be nothing but serious. And it's going to be nothing but intense. And it's going to be nothing but just truth. And I was, I was just so into it. And then, like, weeks later, I was like, well, this is, uh, this is, the classes are great. The people are, are talented. The people are intelligent. But some of the extracurricular activities and surrounding, ex- uh, <laughs> circumstances are just uh are deeply disappointing yeah and just overall lamentation like you see this actors all the time like am i really good like was that good like i'm just so shit i'm like oh just 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 stop just just stop like you you know how well you did stop fishing for compliments stop fishing for validation you're driving me nuts stop it um and this just overall degeneracy like the sort of like oh i need to fuck a bunch of strangers or do a ton of drugs or um watch really just glorify really risque really detrimental um people who are on a road for ruin like there's a lot of negatives tied to this on on the outside outside of the studio and that's where i was like i completely rejected the like oh i'm not going to go to the student night special club on this night i'm not going to just be spending all my money drinking my face off on parties with shallow conversation. No, I became deeply antisocial. I went to parties for the first month and I got over it because I'm going to do something else. I'm going to write. I started writing. I started seeing London. I started going to Muay Thai and I became religious about it. Um, when I got back to California, the controls weren't there as much. Um, I mean, it's not as densely populated a metropolitan area, so you can't really sort of, you can't say, I'm just going to stick to this place because it's so much more spread out. Um, and so, and I didn't have, I didn't have any student loan money. And that's when all of this discipline really started, started to diminish. And then I got into the tech world and I did just enough to be, you know, good. And I was, you know, making good money. And then I was sitting pretty. And I, like you said, it got to the point where I was just like, I sort of remembered who I was in England before I had to leave. And I was like, I missed that guy. I miss that hyper-disciplined guy who is always seeking growth, who is exemplifying all, all the things that I'm admiring and all these heroes I'm reading about. And all, exemplifying some of the things of the saints that I was, I was reading about in the Orthodox Church. That was another big catalyst. Like mm-hmm. coming into the Orthodox Church is a massive catalyst about it. So you're reading about St. George. You're reading about St. Christopher. You're reading about um, St. Moses the Black. You're reading about St. Martin of Tours. I'm like, dude, the resilience. The resilience of these people. I don't see that anywhere. Right. I don't see that anywhere in the Bay Area. And that, that's when I started to notice. My, my father was very, he, he's rooted in tech. So he's always pushing the boundaries. He knows far more now than he did when he was younger. He's like the opposite of the old dog who can't learn new tricks. He's outdoing the young guns. He's constantly, almost violently pushing the boundary of his own knowledge base. Oh, that's such an ageist industry, industry too. They must hate him for it. Big time. It shows them all up. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Um, and so, yeah, that got to a point where I, yeah, like you said, I did organically. And, you know, <laughs> when you had the howling void on, uh, you talked about a lot of the red pill culture is, um, you know, becomes feminism for men because it, it's, it's a lot of it stems from disgruntled guys who couldn't get laid or got screwed over and getting laid with, you know, 
toxic feminism. It's like, I wasn't, I was celibate. I was, I wasn't chasing girls. I was doing the literal opposite. I was, I was doing the green martyr thing. I was, I was doing the monk thing. I was only focused on bettering myself physically, mentally, and spiritually. And then eventually the people around me, like I said, over time. Um, so I didn't have that dynamic. There was no, when, when I first heard about the red pill community, to be abundantly honest, like my initial reaction is like, this is a bit silly. And I don't, I don't think any of the contents are silly. I think a lot of men needed it. But in my mind, where I was at when I initially heard it, I'm like, this kind of sounds obvious. Yeah, exactly. That's where I, that's just where I was at. To anyone who, you know, anyone listening who, who was red pilled, I'm like, thank, thank God. Like you have, mm-hmm. I'm glad you, were. um, but that's, that's just where I was at. Um, and yeah, it did become more organic. And to, to mention again, I, I did I did betray the path. I did. I did betray my path after that. Um, and in the, the podcast, I go into some of the details of that, but I, like I said, I came full circle back to the path. Like I came full circle back to myself. So, yeah. Can you go into some of the details about how you betrayed the path for, uh, for people who won't encounter it on the, it sounds like it was on the evil cast or was it on your, it was on your podcast as well? Um, it's, it's, um, it's episode five, which is in three parts. Okay. That one. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to send people to listen to that, but can can you give the high level for people who uh, who want to listen to this one for right now? I appreciate that, and um, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I was look at this around the same time that of of that Easter of that Pascha where blood and rain emerged. Mm-hmm. Par- running parallel to it were another series of blessings that came with it around the same time. And over time, I became so focused on the blessings. And some of these blessings brought me to New York City. And it got to the point where when I was in New York City, I felt less and less and less and less and less. Yeah, as you would in New York City as it is right now. Or as it was, I suppose, just as it was until very recently. Absolutely. And, and, um, you know, I... I gave up uh, Muay Thai and MMA for a while, mm-hmm. which is just awful to the point where I met, I mentioned it in the podcast, but it's worth mentioning again. When I moved to Brooklyn, I was, uh, I was trying to get a bar job and uh, there was a bar across the street and there's a bouncer standing in front of it. And I go over there to get a job and the guy checks my ID. He looks at me. He's like, you're a martial artist? I'm like, yeah. How'd you know? Like, All right, just tell him, man. I was like, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like you training right now? And I was like, um, no, no, I'm not. Man, you're not gonna feel right if you don't train. I was just like, yeah, yeah, no shit. And it's just like, you know, I tried giving up training for my wife and kids, and my wife said to me, you know, what's up with you? You're different. You're not, you're not the same. It's like I'm not training. I feel like myself. Man, you can't walk away from something that's you. I was like, oh, I, yeah, wow, sure. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't listen. I mean, I just went in and tried to get a job. And I let, let's say, let's just say, I gave. I gave that up for a very noble reason, but despite the noble reason, it was still self-betrayal at the end of the day. And I was beginning to be a shell of myself mm-hmm. and beginning to feel like a ghost. And then the climax of that was the winter solstice of 2018 where I hurt my lower back. Mm-hmm. That dynamic I just mentioned before resulted in a spiritual injury. And I found out that a mentor of mine uh, was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there is, there is the, the sort of the, the, the great fall 
that happened, I want to say from September of 2018 up until that winter solstice point, the rest of the year, like I was truly embodying that the blood and rain. And then, you know, around the same time, it did become a personal account that around that same time mm-hmm. of September, it's like, as soon as I lost sight of that, I was like, hey, <laughs> when the universe slash God spells out for you in an Orthodox Easter service, who you are, and you, you separate yourself from that because you're so focused on the blessings that also came with it. Like, what do you think's going to happen? <laughs> the foundation's going to completely be gone. And ironically, I'm not a big tarot guy, but I was following someone at the time who's since deleted her account. She's a pretty enlightened individual on the winter solstice. She drew the tarot card of the tower, <laughs> basically the complete dis- you know, destruction and reshaking of things. And, um, and she posted it like this, I mentioned earlier in, in, in this in this podcast, talking about, or actually, I mentioned this in a conversation with you that I met many people. Um, there are many people I've met across various faiths who wholeheartedly believe that the consciousness of the universe is ascending and mm-hmm. has been since 2011. Yeah, and she was one of these people, and my mentor was one of these people. And this woman who, who posted the, the tower tarot card on the winter solstice, she had the, the caption is like, this is the biggest transition. And those who are still wrapped up in the old ways are going to feel immense pain and torture. And those who ascend with it will feel nothing but grace. And I, for the entire year of 2019, felt nothing but torture up until, up until the winter solstice of 2019. And that's when... I sort of started to see a glimmer of hope, not, I mean, I, I spent the whole year of 2019 injured. Um, actually, I tried to wedge myself out in New York even longer, even though I didn't know I wanted to be there because I had this chip in my shoulder, like, um, and I was spending Christmas out there alone. I had my mother and several friends ask, do you want us to come out and, um, do you want us to come out and, uh, you know, ease the pain? I said, no, mm. I want to take this on the chin. I got myself out here. You don't, you know, you go out to the frontier. You don't call, you you don't call mom up to come make the frontier nicer. That's just where I was at. And maybe, maybe that's stupid to some people. That's just any, any, any shards left of blood and rain. They were speaking in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then I sort of stupidly wedged myself out there and I wedged myself out for a job that could potentially, you know, be very lucrative in New York city. Um, and the way New York morals work, um, you know, you need to leave a job without giving two weeks because if you tell the new job, that's a startup in this case, was going back to this, this startup world in a sense, not completely mm-hmm. a startup. But um, if you tell people at this stage, especially in such a fast paced place like New York City, I need to give it two weeks. Like, mm, no, like there, there's someone, there's a next, there's another guy after you who can take your spot immediately when I need right. him. Right. It sucks. And, and I don't, I don't care what New York morals are. I don't leave people hanging. So I gave a two week preemptively. And then I signed a sublet in, uh, in Broadway triangle in New York city, which is, um, just South of Williamsburg. Um, and, uh, it's near the projects and I was running out of money and I was waiting on this job and I had a three week sublet. And I said, at the end of the three weeks, if I don't get the job, I'm, I'm moving back to the Bay. And this is my last stand. And I spent most of the time putting myself in a meditative state, trying to avoid hunger, honestly. <laughs> and um, were you just in pur- purposely fasting, or were you starving would, or something? I was trying to save money by not eating, honestly. Oh, that is a good way to save money. Yeah, it was. I was like, "What's my biggest cost right now? Well, food, uh, the subway." 
So am I going to take the subway? No, I'm going to walk across the Williamsburg Bridge when it's 10 degrees and I don't really have a coat. Screw it. Um, and um, Sounds very blood and rain. Yeah, well, it was. Isn't Actually, that, that's, uh, a, that's, that's Henry Rollins. Like, go without a coat when it's cold. Find out what you're made of. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And that's yeah, that, that was definitely part of the thinking. And I actually took a video of me running on the Williamsburg Bridge before I got injured uh, in the rain, doing a little David Goggins thing, sending to my buddy. I was like, so why the hell am I out here running in the rain? It's freezing cold. And I just got to take that on. Because it ain't about where I go. Like, I just did this whole, like, David Goggins impression. He was dying laughing. That's awesome. Full commitment, though, because you're actually on the bridge. You know, you're not just running down some sunny street. Exactly, exactly. And um, <laughs> this he, is the he method. Was in New York at the time too, and he did a running video like that. So I was like, "It's perfect timing," you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, You're a method actor, fundamentally. At least, at least method light. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not going to be John Proctor for six months. Move to Salem and build a house like Daniel Day Lewis, and completely forget who I am. But you know, it's certainly method light. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I wedged myself out there. And it came, there's no job at the end of it. And I weighed considerably less. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And, yeah. And I got a plane ticket uh, back home and I checked my email on the plane and I said, oh, you're in the final interview of the job. Like the fact that like literally if you would have gotten this 20 minutes before just tells me like, no, go home. Yep. Go home. Go home. You weren't supposed to be here in the first place. And I actually came to this realization and meditation through that meditative state the entire time that I always looked at paths linearly. And I was like, I made a mistake, but now I'm back to center and I'm so much better for the mistake, but I'm off the path of blood and rain. And like, I sort of started to manifest this infinity symbol in meditation. I was like, oh, you, you were sprinting by the path, but it came back to full circle. Like it came back to center because you went around the curve of the figure eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I spent the next, you know, the remainder of 2019 injured two months later, my mentor did indeed die of brain cancer, mm-hmm. um, spiritually injured, just working in various bars and wanting to go back to martial arts. But I, I, I was, I, I would had this inner monologue, like, now you're a fucking imposter. You're a fucking imposter. Oh, now you want to come back? Mm-hmm. Oh. Now you want to go back to, to training to fight? Now you want to go back to marching down the road to potentially being a world champion? Mm. Interesting. That was the inner monologue. Mm-hmm. And so I would train some days and I wouldn't, and the lower back got in the way, and it certainly you know affected the bag work and the deadlifts and a bunch of things. And I'd be sitting at a different bar after I got off work at a different bar in San Francisco. And they say, you're going to go train? Like some guys you know him is like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go train zero conviction of like that hey, let's get it going guy from before <laughs> oh and i spent the entire year just in despondency and depression and self-hatred until the winter solstice of 2019 where i didn't really see blood and rain i didn't see myself but i saw i did see a glimmer of hope and yeah i i sorted i i got my financial situation to a better place and I was, uh, I was set up and I was filling out paperwork for a tournament in March and then COVID hit and I lost both my jobs. Mm. And my, my, <laughs> my, my, my costs became crippling 
because I was making quite a bit of money bartending, honestly, because I was doing it at a high level. Mm-hmm. I was doing very good places. And I had a lot of overhead and a bunch of people were taking unemployment. And I was like, I am so fundamentally against getting paid $3,000 a month to sit on my ass. You know, you can have my $3,000, the single mother who's raising four kids. Mm-hmm. She can have my unemployment. Small business owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exact. Small business owner, especially with the Gavin Newsom reign of terror. Ugh. Um, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I went to minimum wage work and I was barely, barely, barely scraping by like eating sacks of potatoes. That's about it. Did you cook them at least? Microwave. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Just microwave a potato. Yeah, you can do it. It doesn't taste very good, but it works. You know, it cooks it. It's the job done. <laughs> at least you're eating. Yeah, I was eating something. And <laughs> eventually until I got to a security job that, that paid benefits and paid more money and, you know, was whatever, right? But throughout that time, I was just seething rage that I had gotten this point of establishment. I was like, wow, I'm at a point where I'm finally back to an established standpoint where I can begin to train again. I can be consistent with it. And, but it was, it was still pretty hollow. There was no essence to it. There was no fullness to it. The blood and rain didn't exist. So mm-hmm. it was like, and when I got to that point of establishment where I was making blank amount of money per month and I was only working 36 hours a week and I had the perfect schedule to train, I had this thing in the back of my head saying, this is all really easy. (laughs) You got this, you got to this point very easily. Something isn't right. Also, you don't look very willing to bleed right now. Mm. You don't look very willing to get hurt in the ring. And I knew that and I didn't know what to do about it. And then a week later, COVID hit and there was part of me that was so mad that I lost everything that I worked for. And I was like, yeah, you know this is coming. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you were kind of asking for this, or wanting it at least in some way. Wanting it and certainly needing it. Yeah. And that sort of pushed the boundary throughout the summer in the minimum wage work and in the security job. And then coming finally to that breaking point of just like, it's, you're done. You're done being depressed. You're done being a shell. No, you're not being an imposter. You're going back to yourself. You are back to yourself. And that's where I'm at. But I, I certainly did betray the path. I betrayed the path in the name of blessings. Mm-hmm which is, I mean, it's, it sounds obviously backwards now, but when you look back then, going towards the blessings is something that makes so much sense. Makes sense logically in the rawest form, but it was the complete opposite of that 22-year-old in 2017 who left the tech world, just who was working bar backing and bouncing shifts seven days a week to chase a dream of professional fighting and chase a dream of eventually being a Nobel prize winner in literature. It was just back. It was the same essence as being in tech. It was the same essence of complacency and eventual decay. Well, as you're talking about betraying the path, I think I can, I can see that and I can, I can, I can feel that, but I, I also get to thinking a little bit about these notions of causality like we're used to thinking of things in terms of the cause happens at 
one point in time and then at a later point in time the effect happens like that's how our life seems to work right like i push the glass over and it shatters on the ground and that's the arrow of time and the arrow of causality but i also think that there's a degree of looking at least the stories of our lives where you know steve jobs said your life doesn't make sense looking forward it only makes sense looking back and then you see all the things lined up to produce whatever that final thing is that you're looking at. It's like, wow, I wouldn't have been here without this and this and this and this. And if this hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm fundamentally okay with where I'm at. In fact, I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. And in that part where I took this detour off the road for who knows whatever reasons, even, even some sort of bad instinct, it still played out in a positive way for the end. And I think there's this notion of causality where, yes, looking forward, like you're, you feel that you're betraying the path in some way, but you're also acting with a sort of integrity and following your, your intuition. And it seems that you're betraying the path, but you're actually going to pick up, you're doing a side quest or you're maybe even failing <laughs> at a side quest. And I'm, I'm very serious. And you pick up this thing that you didn't even know that you needed that then shows up later. And this is the, this is the great mystery of our lives, right? Like we all have this feeling of like, no, I'm in control of my life. I am the, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. And even when I get lost, it's on purpose. It's like, well, no, life doesn't actually work that way. Cause I, right, cause I can look at the things in my life and I'm sure you can too as well. Like for example, I'm doing this podcast now. I spent a number of years when I was living in San Francisco working in the world of pro audio. Like I worked at a, I worked at a music studio south of market called Pyramind. I went to music school there to produce electronic music because I was a DJ for a while. And that was a period of time, maybe like two or three years. And it was always being a DJ in San Francisco. I'm actually super curious if we ever crossed paths, but, um, you know, just it's, it's most certainly possible. It's, you know, well, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe offline, I'll find out what bars you worked at and wonder if, you know, maybe I ordered a drink from you because it's possible that I went to some of the places where you were working, although uh, who knows, but, um, but that will be a mystery that we'll solve later. But so I, I went through that whole phase of my life thinking that, you know, and then I passed through it. I'm like, okay, well, that was a big, that was a big mistake that I went to that school and spent that money to do all that stuff because I wasn't ultimately suited to be an electronic music producer. Like I just don't do well sitting in a dark room for 12 hours at a time, tweaking little knobs and making bleeps and bloops on my own. Like it's just not, I'm not temperamentally suited for that. So I'm like, okay, that was, I'll check that. I'll chalk that up as a giant L and go on with my life. And then, so I, I go walk my road and I go, and I travel, and I come back to the United States and I, you know, for the series of circumstances, I have this idea for the, the Renaissance of men and I start putting together and I'm like, Oh, I'll do a podcast. And then I sit down to record my first podcast. And I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly how to make all of this audio sound amazing, way better than, than a podcast if I, if I hadn't before or something like that. I know exactly what to do to make this sound exact. I, I'm rusty because it's been a number of years, but I know exactly how to produce this and know how to use all the software and all the plugins and everything. And so I send out my first podcast to people and I'm like, Will, this sounds amazing. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, I mean, I have this pro audio background that I now get to apply that I never would, I never thought I would ever use again. I literally had written off the entire era of my life as a giant mistake. But as a matter of fact, you put the pieces together looking forward. You know, I'm so fulfilled doing this now. And it would be a completely different thing if I was having to fight with audio production software and stuff like that. But I didn't have to. And I can just throw a flow, you know, into this sort of practice. And so, you know, this, as you're talking about your life and how you, you fell off the path and, and you betrayed, you betrayed the path. I don't, I don't hear that. What I hear is you need to take this little detour off the main road to discover 
what you lost. So you, if only that, so you could discover what you lost so you can go back to it and go back to it renewed. And I think that's a pretty archetypal story. I think there's probably lots of stories like Batman. You know what I mean? Like, nope, I'm going to go wander the world and I don't want to be Batman anymore until he experiences this thing. Like, no, sorry, you got to go be Batman. Like, okay, you're right. I kind of want to be Batman. And then he comes back and he's like extra Batman. And that's like the archetypal story, right? Yeah. I mean, okay. First of all, as a side note, you have the crispest audio out of all the podcasts. Oh, thank like you. It's just, let's, 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 let's make that abundantly clear. That's awesome. Thank hear, you. Absolutely. Like I hear the audio on mine. It's like, I need a real mic, first of all. And sometimes the rain in the background, like I, <laughs> Neo Libertate, shout out to him. He messaged me saying, mate, like the text is great. What you're saying is awesome. I could barely fucking hear you over the rain in this <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's, I, I can, I definitely can, I can help you with all that, by the way, if you want. That, that, I would be uh, very, very grateful if you could. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I love the rain in the background. The first time I listened to your podcast, I was like, is he actually, cause it, cause it actually sounded like you might be sitting out on like a back porch. Cause I know you lived in Oakland and it rains a lot there. Some, some seasons of the year, especially right now, actually. It's like, is it actually raining where he's sitting? How cool. <laughs> and then I listened a few further of them. Like, no, it's probably not raining today. <laughs> or does he wait to record until it rains? Guys can't, can't record. We've been in a, in a serious drought. So no episode for <laughs> further notice. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so the, the, the rain thing, um, I used to use a rain track during the time that I was actually studying um, plays to audition for drama school. Oh, okay. And it, it sort of hit me like earlier in the day, like to listen to that while I was reading. And I was like, it was the same day I was going to record the podcast. I was like, wait a second. It's, it's called Blood and Rain. It's just, <laughs> just use the rain. <laughs> it's right in front of you the whole time. Absolutely. It was, it was awesome. Uh, I was very thankful for that. In terms of, yeah, there's this. With your audio background, the first thing that came to mind was, um, I believe it was Steve Jobs giving a commencement speech at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking about how he, he was sort of free spirit individual and he's very into Eastern religion and whatnot. Um, and very Zen individual. And he said he wanted to know a class of, I think it was typography. And that because he was in that class, that's why there was, um, such a wide range of fonts in the first Macintosh mm-hmm. and then the Apple one or the Apple two, w- one of the, one of the earlier models. And he's just like, that sort of set apart that set the tone for Apple being this beautiful machine, being this artistic looking machine, striving for the beautiful things, especially during the era that Steve jobs is at the helm and like constantly, we all, if you heard any story of him working ever, you know, he's a gigantic asshole, but he's a gigantic asshole because he's trying to be as precise to the vision as possible and and he's an asshole and he's an asshole yeah absolutely. <laughs> i uh I, I i may or may not have met him in passing while fencing against one of his children uh, <laughs> may or may not may or may, uh, maybe 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 not at some point in time um but might have um, happened. just 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 sprinkle there don't break from there <laughs> um, <laughs> brush with greatness maybe yeah you know I, yeah, he was wearing a turtleneck i can tell you that much <laughs> <laughs> that certainly hasn't rubbed off. Um, but um, yeah, so that was the first thing that came to mind. In terms of the more journey-based type thing, you know, I'm a hell of a lot more balanced mm-hmm. than I was at the first iteration of Blood and Rain. And I was super, super intense, as I mentioned, for the obvious biological reasons at hand. Yeah. Um, but... In addition to that, 
I'm I'm sort of starting to surge toward that same intensity now, honestly. Like one Mm -hmm. of the few in episode five, part three. The reason I keep referring to episode five is because I had a one of my Instagram followers in my Q and A asked me, "How does one start a path of blood and grain if they haven't already?" And that threw me for a loop Mm -hmm. because I was like, "Well, what do you what do you mean? Like I'm I'm not." The, the question initially came off me like I'm not like if my response is like dude I'm not I'm not trying to lead like a religious movement or anything you know like, <laughs> I'm, I'm re- that that was my sort of initial reaction and then you know I'm not going to say everyone who goes to my page is looking to me as a leader I don't I don't really think that's abundantly true I think people go for the content I think go to the page for the way it makes them feel or whatnot, learn some things about fighting, you know, learn some, see, see today's breakdown about Valentina Shevchenko and her phenomenal striking, uh, phenomenal striking style. But I never, I never saw it as a thing of leadership. And here's this person asking me, how does one start down a path of blood and rain? And it was, he gave me that Q and A for the third episode of the podcast. And I, I, I said that for the very last question. And I gave, I, I, by the time I got there, I waited four days. You know, I was like, oh, I'll probably know by the time the episode rolls around. I was like, all right, we'll get there. And I was like, I don't, I, I said, I, I know how you should declare to yourself that you want to start a path. I cited this video of Nathan Carnage Corbett, the Australian 10-time world champion Muay Thai fighter. He put out a phenomenal video on his Instagram saying, um, it's important to declare, I'm not going to do the Australian accent because, you know, I told you that's, that, that, that one's in ruins, unfortunately. Mm. But he declared himself one day that he was going to be the type of fighter who finished fights, greatly inspired by Mike Tyson saying, I'm going to be the type of fighter who finishes fights. And he certainly finishes fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's it coming from this very peaceful, spiritual balanced way when you hear him speak about it. And I said, to declare, like, it's important that you declare the path yourself. But then I said, but I don't really know how to tell you what that path is. So let me, let me get back to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me get back to you in the next episode. And then the next episode, episode four, was, uh, was a guest, was a great, phenomenal, another wise beyond his years type kid, uh, 19 years old, mm. gallantry fuel. Uh, he's from Alabama. He plays Div 1 basketball. Just a world of wisdom from that wow. kid. I, really? I just, cannot, oh, just I cannot wait to see that guy flourish. I'm itching, itching to see both him and Evil Academy flourish. So awesome. It's, it's, it's again, hope for the future. But, oh, um, God, yeah. It's thank, Gen Z. You know what? You're looking good for where I'm standing. I'll tell you that much. Well, I, I would love uh, to get in this. I'm, I'm loving you guys right now. Well, I mean, you're. I mean, this is this is part of why I asked. Is this notion of men who have spontaneously red pilled themselves? Like this is, you know, this is not. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to derail the story that you were getting to, but this is like when you look at the generations of the re- Renaissance of men, which is a, now a forty-year process. You look at the guys who were doing it in the nineteen eighties and nineties, and then the poetic guys, and then the pickup guys, and then the red pill guys, and the patriarchs. Like you know, this this is a generational thing. It's waves that are passing through generations that they're passing it on from man to man. But when I hear your story and Evil Academy and Gallantry Fuel and I think Neo Libertate as well, seem like guys that have definitely discover this world where it's like it just came out of them organically and that's the most exciting thing like this is real this is the part that i'm trying to really drive into people the renaissance of men is real like forrest munden calls it the solar ascension and you know brandon schmidt calls it the masculine revival and and tom billinge calls it the age of heroes whatever you call it i call it the renaissance of men i like that better but what whatever you call it 
It's real. I'm not making it up. I just defining, describing a thing that is already existing. And then it's just spontaneously popping in men's minds and souls as in yours. And as in the guys we're talking about, like that's incredible. That is incredible. That's a victory. That's seeds of victory right there because it's not passing from man to man virally. It's like, wait a minute. Why is that star going supernova over there? And that star is going supernova over there. It's like, no, no. And the whole sky will light up if, 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 if it's real and it's real. So that's why I get really excited when you tell me those things. So I'm sorry. I don't mean to derail your story. No, 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 not, not, not at all. I mean, that's, you know, to, 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 to use another musing from what Howling Void is saying, he loves, I love it, keep saying operating system. Like, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. I love that. You know, some of these things are of our accord. And, and a lot, but the, the most, most of the renaissance of men, or there's, there's a lot of deliberate action. Like, I'm not going to take away the work and actions of all these men since the 80s, as you just mentioned. Yes. That cannot be denied. However, a lot of it is not of our accord. A lot of it, especially with these young cats. Yeah. You know, some of them, some of them, it, it, some of them are purely discovering the red pill, like you said. They've been introduced to it. Yeah. Some of them have a blend of discovering it, and some of it being kind of of their own accord or of something else. And some of them is completely, like you said, like in in in, in my story, like I said, that you came from red pill myself. It was not, a, but at the same time, I view it as not it's part of my accord, but not really of my accord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's when you when you say the Renaissance of men, it's happening supernova here, super. It's to, to, to take what Howling Void said, it's like something is downloading this operating system yes. of the renaissance of men in this generation, this generation that's next up. Mm-hmm. And oh, God, I just look at him like, oh, you golden children. That's right. <laughs> yep. It's in the field. It's a morphogenetic field. Like this, I'm remembering, you know, some of the things that the new age people talk about, like the, I think it's the hundredth monkey or 10th monkey or something like that, that they observed actual scientific research that they had all these monkeys and they, and they, they taught one of the monkeys, one of the skills and the monkey passed it on to, and once it reached like the 10th or the 11th monkey or something like that, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes because this is an actual thing. Once they had the 11th or 10th monkey learning the skill, suddenly all the monkeys just knew how to do it. And so this creates uh, evidence for this thing called the morphogenetic field, which is maybe Carl Jung would call it uh, the collective unconscious or something like that. But like the notion that there's so much shifting going on, so much powerful energy being fed into this engine that it's actually creating what we might call psychic or psychological waves into the field that are just like popping in people now. Absolutely. And the, the amount of synchronicities every single day that come with it, it's just I hear it about it. I hear about it from you. I hear about it from Near Libertate. I hear about it from Forrest. I hear about it from Flobotus. I hear about it from yeah. people in the fields. I hear about it from all these guys. Yeah. All of them. From the high art of Chattisan himself, <laughs> Nature Pill, Devin Madrano. Like, <laughs> like, well, from everybody. Well, those, those guys that you mentioned, all of these guys, like, What's I find so fascinating about that particular corner is that it, it, it seems very disconnected from the other corners. Like these guys didn't go to the 21 convention. You know what I mean? Which nope. is, you know, which is the core engine. Maybe one of them might have picked up Rolo Tomasi or something like that, or one of those foundational books. Maybe someone like Jack Donovan, who was just on my podcast. We had an awesome conversation. Maybe some of those picked up those ideas, but it seems like this community of guys is just doing their own thing in their own way. This very thematic warrior poet kind of way, like erudite, educated, strong, fit, you know, capable guys, but they didn't learn it from watching a YouTube video. It's just who, nope. like you, like it's just who you decided to be. I'm like, this is just touchdown. And you know what? 
the, the corner you're talking about, I don't know exactly what you're talking about because we all found each other all at once. It was the most bizarre thing. And so it, awesome. again, I, I sound like a broken record. It all centered around the winter solstice. It all centered around the great conjunction. Sorry. When you have an astrological event that doesn't happen for 800 years, something's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. something's going to happen. Um, the energy was so high that day, such positive energy that day. It was, it was insane. A day later, I, I, I don't know where this came from. I had zero intentions of doing a podcast, <laughs> but I posted this very aggressive, very aggressive note, like just calling out myself on my Instagram stories. Like what well, you can prepare to see from blood and rain next year, just two, at least two posts a day, yeah. um, long form content, collaborative content, fight tips, breakdowns of fights, just all these, all these things. Um, Pictures of my championship belts. Like I was calling myself out to the upteenth degree and then to say, and a podcast, you know, and two other, two other modes of, of content creation. I was, that just came out of me. And I like, I don't no idea why I just wrote that. I'm like, I'm like, all right, I got a tall order to follow up now, <laughs> yeah. but it's been awesome. The gauntlet <laughs> it's been has awesome. been thrown down. Yeah. I threw it at myself, but it's like, that's, <laughs> that's how blood and rain started. That's, that's who I am plain and simple. And that's honestly, that's, that's who forest is. That's who Forrest Munden is. That's who Neo Libertate is. That's yep. who people of the fields is. Flo Modus, Howling Void, all these guys. Yep. Or like to, Howling, Howling Void has one foot because he's older. He's, he has one foot in the intellectual dark web. Or not, not really the intellectual dark web. He's the same, but he's saying those guys, the yep. Howling Void adjacent accounts, like um, to lateral to Twitter, Brother Lobo, um, you know, a b- bunch bra. of these guys that Soul, absolutely Soul bra. He's, you know, he's the one that a lot of the, a lot of the new cats want to be like, and I wholeheartedly understand. Yeah. Um, but the newest fear, like the corner, like me, Forrest, like <laughs> Forrest and I have had conversations. He's like, Hey man, like, it's just like, Hey man, I was wondering what you think about this. And I'm like, yeah, I think this. And he's like, I completely agree. What do you think about this? I'm like, I completely agree. He's like, yeah, we should do this. I'm like, yes, we, yes, we should. Like it's, uh-huh. <laughs> we all found each other all at once. Are we best friends now? Um, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much like the same dynamic you had with, um, with Jonathan West. Yeah. Phenomenal podcast, by the way. Oh, thank Love you. listening to it. The, the, the discipline of being a husband is a discipline and that's a discipline that needs to be cultivated again. And yeah. he's wholeheartedly doing that work. For sure. For um, sure. His wife is pregnant too. So he's going to be, he's going to be a father. Bless. Oh, that's fantastic. He's going to be a great father. Oh, for sure. That kid's going to come out the womb of boss. Jeez. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's going to be, yeah. I mean, so like, like you said, this, this, this operating system is being downloaded and you know what? The people who, it, it, it comes in varying degrees. Like I said, there's, there's the things at play are red pilling yourself mm-hmm. or they were red pilled or they saw something out that wanted being the red pill or then realizes the red pill until much later. But to them, it's still not the red pill right. or it's this consciousness is just inherent from, from the get go. Like gallantry field, you listen to him speak like, Oh, this is, it's also part of his upbringing for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's also in him, you know, that's his essence. Um, and bo- both, both Galaxy Fuel and Evil Academy found mentors who live in different states. They just found mentors who were helping them along the way, like uh, older adult mentors, spiritual mentors. I'm like, what? What? And so there's that. And then there's also the people who have the younger, like the, the accounts that are surging right now. And Galaxy Fuel and I talked about this. I'm like, dude, when you think about it. And, and for, Forrest was sort of the first one to the podcast out of all the, the, this this corner, right? Mm-hmm. And you would think that, you know, strong, 
military individual is like, I'm the podcast guy. Like this might've been, he's like, no, he wants everyone to start a podcast. It's the complete opposite. I agree. He's like, you should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. You should start a podcast until this is the norm. Yep. The work is done. That's right. Um, and so you also get these guys who are starting to ask questions. You guys, these questions like, well, how should I start my content create, content creation account? Nature Chad, another great creator. He's just like, you should just start it. Mm-hmm. There you go. Just, <laughs> you just start. Boom. Just, He's like, I, I posted my first, my first, uh, my first post on nature chat was a picture of bread there. I started great. Yeah. Congratulations. What? You now have a, you now have an Instagram account. Go for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah you just created uh, content creation of fostering sourdough bread, which is a great, great crusade to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have these guys also asking, like I said, like asking for guidance and that's leaving People like Forrest, people like Flomotus, people like yourself, people in other spheres, but like we're all in the same sphere, but they're like you said, they're different corners of it, which I find really cool. Yeah. Really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who are, who are asking questions of like, how do I start down this path? And like I went through in that set of episodes and like, I've seen in Forest indirectly, and I've seen Flow Modus has a podcast coming out soon, which I'm itching to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you hear the reverence, and you hear the deep thought and meditation in Flow Modus's post as well, and you hear this in some of the contemplative nature of Forest's podcasts. That even they're trying to, they understand that they're on a path. They understand who they are. They understand that this is that we we've all gotten here at this point, but myself included the, the three of us and the other guys I mentioned letters from the fields. Like I could mention 30 accounts right now. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yep. Me too. It's, which is again, that that's, that's what it should be. It should be 300 to be 3000, 300,000, so on and so forth. So exciting. Yeah, and it, we don't know where we're going to be at the end of the year. Yeah. I told for this. Like at the end of the year, it could be just like the, 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 the most influential one doesn't even exist yet. Probably, which is awesome. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's heavy. I love it. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, you know, the golden one was the first guy to get zucked. And even he, like he's this jacked six, five handsome Swedish man with an abundance of wisdom. And he's like, you know, we're searching for the guy. I'm like, you'd think being called the golden one that you would think you're the guy, but you were not the, the quote unquote guy. And it, I don't think there is one guy and I don't think they'll take all of us, but there are going to be, there's going to be ebbs and flows of who has the most impact. And I think that's, that's almost like Jacques Derrida's concept of the event. It's like there's a crystalline structure for all of us in this in this sphere mm-hmm. that's rigid, more remain the same. But I think each of us are taking turns in the center or multiple accounts are taking turns being in the center, like soul bra weaves in and out of being in the center. Lobo, Howling Void, yourself, Jack Donovan, Forrest Munden, so on and so forth. What an honor to be included with those names. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you, I mean... A lot of people are a lot of people are naming, like you said, they all have all these different names. The Renaissance of Men. You're the only one trying to get everyone to congregate all at once. I am very much you're, so. You're teaching from every corner and trying to get it all at one place, and that's what we need. Thank you. That's exactly. That, and that's exactly Absolutely. what I'm trying to do. And what you say about the center, like the way that I view it, with the the metaphor of the Renaissance, is there was no leader of the Renaissance. Like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Titian, Botticelli, these guys didn't lead. They were excellent in their own particular corner, in their own particular sphere. And of course, looking back through history, there were nodes of influence 
right? As we're, as we're talking about that influenced artists and creators around them, including some names that we don't know, but you don't look back and say, this was the leader of the Renaissance. Yes. Leonardo da Vinci's work was probably the most broad and timeless and diverse, but he, they didn't all look to him and Michelangelo, of course, as well, but they didn't all look to him. It was everyone were, was doing their thing. Everyone was being a content creator in the language that we would use today, I think, but they were all pursuing their art or music or engineering or, uh, or sculpture or whatever and created this whole movement that shifted the field. And that's why I like the metaphor of the Renaissance is that it's not a singular, it's not a singular thing, a singular event that happens at one particular moment in time. It was this big 200 year long process. And it wasn't, there wasn't one guy leading it or one group leading it. It was a whole bunch of different guys at a whole bunch of different times that were passing ideas around. And we started off the conversation talking about the 1920s in Paris during that golden age, same kind of thing, passing all these ideas around interacting, of course, in one centralized location, but artists passing these ideas around for the mutual betterment of each other. And I see this, we're doing the exact same thing, but with masculinity. And it's fucking awesome. It's exactly what needs to be done. Yep. God slash the universe slash divinity. You know, we talked, this was, this was a criticism and I don't, I don't have very many criticisms of some of the created content of this community. Mm. And it, it really isn't a criticism. It's like me adding an extra piece to a puzzle. The golden one talked about that politics is downstream from culture. Yeah. So all, if we focus on all the political disarray, we're just going to get caught in the fray and eaten alive and it's going to be completely pointless. And I completely agree. Yeah. Politics is also far more law and order, also far more nuanced than any news outlet will ever tell you. And most people will ever tell you. So I do believe politics is downstream from culture, but I believe I tagged you in a bunch of all the names that we were just listing mm-hmm. in a post that actually I had, I, I, I sort of came to this realization in a conversation with, with the high bard of Chattisnan, ancient <laughs> um, our very own Homer. God, God, yeah, absolutely. God bless that man. God bless that man. And, um, I was like, you know what? I think, I think culture is downstream from something else. Culture is downstream from consciousness. Yes. I love it. The the highest, like, we can't have a war in divinity because there's divinity within within ourselves and there's divinity on earth, but we have no dominion over that at all. But the closest thing we have downstream divinity is consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's the realm we can work in. If we win the consciousness war, and there's a phenomenal creator who's been at it for a long time and is not in the sphere, but his name's Found Conscious, uh, Found Conscious on Instagram. Found conscious. Oh sure. my God. Sounds amazing. He, he shares so much hidden knowledge. I had zero clue about, um, but he's still overall very positive despite he's giving you what are essentially black pills a lot of the time. Hmm. It's like, why do I still feel good having learned about this, this doom, this piece of doom that you just shared with the universe. <laughs> right. Uh, but if we win that war on consciousness, we win the culture war, we win the political war, plain and simple. I agree. And this is, but this is a conscious movement. Like yeah. consciousness corrected itself. Divinity corrected consciousness or else we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing. Oh. Now that, that that's the work that we can't do because that's coming from divinity. But right when it arrives in the well of consciousness, just down from the stream, the, the, the spring of divinity, we can guide the stream accordingly. And that's our work. That's the work we're supposed to do. That's the work where we can't be lazy. There are a lot of things we can't control and we do need to recognize those. Yeah. That's the job. Like 
(laughs) there's there's nothing there is nothing we could possibly do to have just implant all these things in mass and the young people all at once in one day just like the great conjunction which i am 1000 percent convinced was a key key event yes very subtle along with the one in 2012 there was something very very subtle that happened there it wasn't the big new age you know, we all take a leap forward into hyperspace kind of thing, but something shifted somewhere under the ground and now it's percolating outwards. Absolutely. It's always a winter solstice. Don't know why it's never the summer. It's always a winter solstice. It's interesting. Yeah, right. Um, it's very interesting to me. Um, but yeah, you're the only one quantifying. You're the only one saying like, we don't need to get together. Like that's, that's what we need. Like, you're talking about the Renaissance of men. The Renaissance men is a solar ideal, is the age of heroes, is uh, is the, the path of blood and rain. Mm-hmm. Is the howling, is is the operating system of the howling void. I know he, he that's a musing of his from his favorite author, but nonetheless, that is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I love it. Like the consciousness is, uh, you say that um, politics is downstream, downstream from culture and culture is downstream from consciousness. Like that's incredible because that is the shift and that's the, and it is a shift in consciousness, a very powerful shift in consciousness. And in order to be worthy of that shift in consciousness, we have to remain conscious ourselves. And as we're talking about manipulation versus influence, power versus force, embodiment practices, all of these things on the light side of the equation, for example, to, to exert power, this or influence over force that only comes about from consciousness that only comes about from choice to to take the hard path to do the green martyr thing to say no i'm going to make a conscious choice to improve myself to say yes to things that that make me feel strong and powerful and connected and to say no no from things that distract me and you're talking about your experience at the bar with those men who were like, we want a little bit of what he's got going on. And I was thinking at the time, like you kind of figured out MGTOW, but without all the MGTOW, like I like the green martyr image so much better than MGTOW because MGTOW has this reactionary kind of vibe around it. Whereas to say green martyr has a self-sacrificing quality, which creates a sense of power. And this is how we become worthy of this consciousness evolution. We are the vessels for it. We are the vehicles for it. The renaissance of men is not ha- like we can't look around and see it. You can't look around like you look at the industrial revolution, for example, and you see, you know, electricity and factories. It's this thing happening from outside of humans that they have to adapt to. The renaissance of men is happening inside us and we can't look around and see it. But because it's happening inside us, it can only happen through us we become the vessels for consciousness and so that's the that's the that's what you're saying is like you know consciousness is upstream from culture that's exactly to your point that's so brilliant because that's the where's it coming from it's coming from a shift in consciousness there's a top-down quality that we're embodying but us and our practice and the things that we do and the content that we create because content creation has this powerful way of we have to take our ideas and communicate them in some way, whether it be visually or or through text or something or whatever medium or art, you know, whatever I guess, which is visual. But you have to, you have, it's not, it can't be nebulous. Like if you were, you had this blood and rain palm in your mind, and as long as it was floating around nebulous in your head as this idea, you can't really do anything with it. But the second you carve it out from the void and you make it into a concrete thing and you put it out there, this and these enormous ripples, everything, everything crystallizes in your life or begins to and begins rippling outwards. And that's why content creation is so important right now. 
you have to take the consciousness and you have to bring it into your body and put it out in the world for someone else to see to make it real. And that's how you feed coal into the engine of this transformation. 1000%. Awesome. I'm high-fiving it, you. <laughs> likewise, brother. That's yeah. it, it, it. You know, we talk about this thing, right? We talk about this update in the operating system, this transfer of consciousness, all these things that are culminating mm-hmm. in the yeah. of men. But in speaking, bringing it to the deliberate and being conscious, I think it's very important to note as well that the, I think Carl Jung's collective subconscious is probably the most accurate sort of description for what it is. Like, obviously, it's the renaissance event and all these things. But in terms of the link, right, say it is a collective subconscious. That being said, I think maybe some people listening to this could think that, like, oh, that's like this thing, this bigger thing separate from the self. Like, no. Like, at the end of that post that I tagged you in about everything being downstream from consciousness within our control, basically, is that every single, every, literally every single choice you make, I'm not kidding, mm-hmm. every single choice you make every single day, either does or does not contribute to that. Every mm-hmm. choice is either conscious or not conscious. And then within that, every choice, every conscious choice is either the choice to listen to what the consciousness is telling you or to ignore it, which is even worse than to not be conscious at all in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, you know, as I think about it, like being at least having the tools to eventually make the right choice is good. So I'm actually, to be honest, I'm on the fence with that last bit. But there's a there's a quote that comes to mind in response to that, which is a blessing ignored becomes a curse. Oof. Right. Big time, man. Yeah. Big yeah. Time. It'll eventually come full circle. Eventually, Jonah needs to go to Nineveh. Mm-hmm. Come out of the whale. Eventually, Batman needs to be Batman. Mm-hmm. Your destiny chases you. You chase your destiny or it chases you. But if your destiny has to chase after you, well, this is the difference between destiny and fate is that when you choose, when you choose your fate, you make it your destiny. But if you run from it, then it becomes your fate. And actually it takes on a very different shape when it catches you. Absolutely. And what a, what a strange thing to consciously run from too. Like I think sometimes when you don't come, when you're unconsciously running from it, there can be more insight involved because you're so detached from that. When you have this thing in the back of your head, like I'm running from my destiny, I'm running from who I am. It's like, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, man. Good no luck place, from yourself. There's no place to go. Well, it's, we, we've only, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but I did want to talk on, touch on Christianity because literally just today I was reading Luke. And in the book of Luke, there's a I, have a, I have a study Bible that sort of breaks down some of the passages and what's going on. It's really helpful for getting into the text. And there's this, there's this bit where Jesus says to the disciples, I will now go to Jerusalem where the son of man will be crucified, et cetera. And in the note, it said in this moment in the text is when Jesus tells his, turns conclusively, decisively towards his fate and begins walking towards Jerusalem and lets his disciples know what to, to expect. And what a noble act that was for Jesus to, to say, okay, I know that I'm going to suffer terribly and die in this terrible way, and yet I'm still turning towards my fate for the good of the world, turning towards my destiny. It's, it's one of the most moving things you can convey to people, but I think specifically a man, mm-hmm. because I think that's what men are built for, mm-hmm. honestly. 
I mean, my, uh, you know, Game of Thrones obviously took the biggest face plant on. <laughs> yeah. Just, you, you just, it's like watching, it really is watching a, a train wreck. It's like, wow, that's really happening right now. Damn. <laughs> it's oh. just getting worse. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. But there were two characters. I mean, one, uh, really one character because one was honorable, but it really is just a glorified simp and Jorah Marmont, honestly, but whatever. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> tough as nails, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, Beta Orbiter. Yeah. It's just like, man, if you just focused all that, something a little bit better, we'd be pretty good on, well off here. Yeah. Um, but Beric Dondarrion. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Underused character. Underused. Just death is the only enemy. That's all I know. And we still need to fight him. <laughs> That's all I know. You and I won't find much joy while we're here, but we can keep the, we can keep others alive. Just everything that came out of that man's mouth. And he kept being brought back from life five times. Yeah. Every time I come back, I'm a little bit less. Every time I come back, I'm a little bit less. Here we all here we all are on the edge of the world, all in the same place, all fighting the same enemy. I have no idea why our Lord does what he does, but I know he wants me alive. Mm. And that last bit, oh god, just thinking like it's the it's the only silver lining of that just atrocious ending, that atrocious six episodes. When I think about it, I get chills every time. And he screams at the hound, Clegane! Clegane, we need you. It's like you fucking stupid whore. We can't defeat death. And he points to Arya and he says, tell her that. Hmm. And he, he assumes the position of a cross mm-hmm. at the doorway. Yep. He gets eaten alive. I, I honestly don't think anything's ever moved me more. And, but it's, it's, it's funny. It's the same story. Yeah. It's the same story. I know exactly my suffering. I know exactly my end. And yet I'm still going to go. Find the biggest load you can bear and bear it, as Jordan Peterson says. Absolutely. And I think that's what everyone in this renaissance of men needs to do. I agree. I agree. And if we do anything, if we do anything in our work beyond benefiting ourselves with our practice but if we pass anything on it's finding a sense it's helping other men find a sense of purpose for themselves and they find something that they would be willing to give their lives for then not necessarily even die for i mean there's there is that sense there is that ultimate sense but what would you give your life for in terms of your time your life force your energy what are you giving your life for and to see men light up with that whatever it is, is the best possible thing that they're lit up giving their life for something. That's what I want to give to men. Why that, that ending scene in last samurai when he's handing the sword, the emperor, will you tell me how he died? I will tell you how he lived. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And then the only line I think Tom Cruise has ever delivered. I was like, wow, (laughs) probably. But it was, and I think of, uh, I think of the Return of the King, the very end of the Return of the King, where Aragorn has the crown and he's singing the Elvish song for Arwen, and then she appears out of the crowd behind her father, and ah, oh, 
Elrond. He turns around, sees Elrond there, and then Arwen peeks out from behind him. And that that just gets me every time. It's like when you follow your road all the way to the very end and you earn your crown, your queen will be there waiting for you. Not before. Uh, uh, I can wholeheartedly say that is abundantly true. As an engaged man, yeah? Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm aware that you have to be going, unfortunately, as much as I as much as I regret that, but also the next battle must be fought. Absolutely. I mean, this is very clearly, though, that the, <laughs> it's very clearly not going to be the last time you and I speak and the last time men get together. Amen. Amen. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Arthur. Thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure has truly been all mine. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Where you. can people go to find out more about you and what you do? At the moment, uh, I am on, I'm on two modes of social media. I'm on Instagram, blood underscore and underscore rain. There is a telegram group for, with a similar name. There is the podcast available on all podcast platforms, not YouTube, but you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, so on and so forth. Things in the works. Um, there's a novel in the works that should be released third quarter of this year. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And it's a myth. I've wanted to write a myth since I was about 10 years old. At 10 years old, I realized I wasn't ready to write a myth. And now I think I'm ready to write a myth. I think uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> First of many. I, I hope, I hope, I hope. And, and, uh, there's also a website in the works for long form content. You know, uh, at the end of the gallon, Shifu podcast, I kind of figured out like, you know, I think we don't just need collaborative vocal content like podcasts. I think we need collaborative written content. Um, so there's going to be a website. I also did a poll on the blood and Ram, blood and rain Instagram story where people want to see weekly chapters of short stories and essays and things of that nature. And, you know, 99% yes. Got two no's out of hundreds of yeses. So I'll, I'll go with yeses. No one cares about their opinion anyway. No, who needs their opinions? Absolutely not. Um, so I'll be, there's going to be a website of some such. I'm not entirely sure the platform yet. That'll be coming out. That will also be announced on Blood and Rain's Instagram. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much again. This has been absolute joy of a conversation. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.